welcome back to Deep Focus. My name's Quaid, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick. How you doing? Very good. Very good indeed. Nice. Um, oh. Anyways, it's been a little while since we recorded like a normal episode. We had like that five-hour <laughs> session for Best of the 2010s, and then we did In the Car for Tenet. Yep. So here we are, back to back the usual. Back to the computer, yeah. Um. Yeah, so a Dune trailer just dropped. Uh, it was actually September 8th, not the 9th, like the trailer that we saw in theaters said. Okay. But uh, it was awesome. Did you see it? Yeah, I did. I did watch it. It does look very good. I'm it very much a fan of a lot of the actors they got in there. Oh, it yeah. It looks visually stunning. He definitely has a unique way of uh, shooting these films. Mm-hmm. When you look at when you think of Blade Runner. Have you seen... um? all those pictures of like the fires going on in San Francisco right now. Yeah. It looks yeah. like Blade Runner. <laughs> it does. <laughs> it looks like uh, that. Or Oregon too. Have you seen that one? Mm. I think they have it worse actually. Yeah. But, uh, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, not to mention us, Colorado. Yeah. You know, we've, we've had a few. Yeah. But this, that, what it does to the atmosphere, what it does to the light, you know, this, that orange shade of, Every, on everything you know it looks like that ryan gosling scene when yeah. he's there in the desert <laughs> in las vegas yeah i saw yeah. some screenshots of dune as well where he's doing a similar thing but with yellow i really like yeah. that i really it's like fun because like he gets to he gets to be in the desert the whole time this time mm-hmm. <laughs> um but yeah it's exciting i i've decided that i'm finally going to pick up dune on my bookshelf here and read it i've had it on me for a couple of years now and i haven't read it nice and uh i'm like okay you know what I'm going to I'm going to read this sucker uh, before the movie comes out. Um, There's no clear uh, release date from what I understand. Um, Yeah, it just said only in theaters. So, yeah, who knows what that means? This is a Warner Brothers film, if I understand correctly, because both Villeneuve and Nolan do uh, work with uh, Warner Brothers. Right. Yeah. That makes uh, me want to like approach them. (laughs) <laughs> yes, I know. And that's always what I've had in my head. In my head, I've always like Warner Brothers seems like the the shit out of all the studios. Oh, and they sure. also own uh, HBO, right? They're part of HBO, really. So like, and that's also the streaming service that I like the most. So Maybe those producers just really know what they're doing. Yeah, I think they got, and they also have like a lot of really cool partners, like Legendary and so on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, an interesting thing is Tenet has done good in the in terms of its release. Really? Um, in terms, yeah, like it's made some good money. I think it's over a hundred million dollars internationally for that first week, which is not great when you would think about what movies would make before COVID. Before COVID, but, but that's pretty good for their for... estimation. And because it's not everywhere around the world at once, you know, yeah, uh, it's doing pretty good. However, because of this, Warner Brothers is putting off releasing Dune and Wonder Woman as because they might have released them sooner. Okay. Um, for two reasons. One of them, the obvious reason is they're going to keep Tenet in theaters a really long time. So might as well let Tenet breathe and everyone can go see Tenet over a few months, you know, as opposed to most people seeing it within the first month. Yeah. Um, and that's also actually, second, go yeah, ahead. Uh, that's actually something I wanted to talk about was what do you think this is going to do to uh, like uh, films runtime in theaters? Because that's always been like, I, I think both of, both of us have pointed out before that's kind of like a toxic element of film is their relationship with with the theaters the first two weeks is pretty much all that matters yeah right right um and it's like so short term and that's kind of what leads to this it's it's almost like um remember kind of like in the height of the dvd era where they just like 
dump a bunch into advertising and like cover art and stuff. Yeah. And then like they just get the cheapest people possible and like work on the fastest uh, timeline possible just to push the movie out. And like it was a quantity over over quality game because everything was making a little money. So it was like the right thing to do is just to blast out as much as you could. Yeah. Efficiency. Yeah. You know, but uh, like this with this new uh, or sorry, with the theaters kind of being how they were, where like everyone would only come in droves to the theater. Um, it kind of promoted that whole like, you know, let's do this in like two weeks and get it over with. Yeah. And know? also their money's front loaded for the studio. So right. It has on extra pressure. Right, yeah, it's right. interesting. I really like this, the, the idea that they're trying out these older distribution methods where movies would be out for a lot longer. Like movies in the past were like getting distributed around the world for like two years, you know? Right. Like they would be maybe in America's, for an example, like they'd be released on the West Coast on a few hundred screens. Then they'd get a few hundred more screens on the West Coast, but then go live on the East Coast for a few hundred screens. And right. by the time it's done on the West Coast, it gets re- released in some markets in middle America, but not even all of them. Right. So it's not mm-hmm. that extreme with Tenet, but it is similar to that, where it's definitely we're going to let people talk about the movie and find the movie over a few months. And it's not released internationally all at once. Yeah. Um, I wonder if that'll even change like critics behavior to go see every movie. Like, it already right has. Before- Really? Like I've already noticed that critics have no clue what to say about Tenet. They have no clue. Like I, it's a very <laughs> bipolar messaging on, you know, like if you just read the headlines and like they have really no clue how to handle it and they have no clue how to write about whether or not it making the money it's made is a good thing or a bad thing for it. You know? Yeah. Um, they're they're you sort know, of context building machine. Their consensus consensus building machine has been sort of broken down. They don't know what to do. <laughs> right. Uh, you yeah because uh, did they even have early screenings? Like I mean they did have early screenings for Tenant, but did they do like the um like the inner circle of critics thing with this film? I don't know. I, I don't know either. at all. Well, it's interesting. You know, the second thing um, that I wanted to get to about the release of this as well with the the money is. The reason why they're delaying Wonder Woman and uh, Dune a little even further um, because of the money that Tenet's made is this sort of shows in many ways the weaknesses of the tempo strategy. You know, what's the tempo strategy? The studios think, uh, depending on the studio, right, they're going to make like four to six big fucking movies a year that are like multi-hundred million dollar budgets. And all they need is for one to be super successful or for two to be moderately successful to make their money back, you know? Right. And so that's really good odds, frankly, especially if you have a pre-existing franchise and all yep. the other stuff. And then, you know, more than likely, it's going to be three that are pretty pretty successful at the very least. Um, so that you make a shit ton of money. But that requires this sort of culture that they cultivated of people going to the movie theaters, especially at the big launch days, and seeing everyone sees the movie within that first couple of weeks, you know. Yeah. That's just not happening right now. This is definitely a time suited more towards the type of movie that really doesn't get made anymore, which is like that 10 to $60 million movie. Like that, that kind of movie would be thriving right now. So because if you think about it, if Tenet just recuperates its own budget, which is probably what it's going to do at this point, maybe makes a little bit of money, but it probably just makes its money back, which is good. I think it depends know? on uh, what deal they have with the theaters right now. True. Uh, because they might have changed it. Well, the deal I hear no one's been saying that the theater, the deal they made with the theaters is that it's going to be exhibited a lot longer, but we'll see what, yeah, it, it maybe, depends. But like, yeah. here's the thing. If it doesn't, 
if it just recoups its own money, you know, then you're sort of, that's really good considering the situation. And even if it makes a little bit of a profit, but then it's sort of a little scary to release your temples because, you know, if, if one doesn't recoup its money and this keeps happening, it's only due to attendance, really. How the fuck? There's not one of them isn't going to come out of nowhere and save you. You know what I mean? Like right. your, your chances you need rather than being one or two moderately successful, you need like a majority of them to be moderately successful to right. start making money. So. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I mean, we know Wonder Woman will probably, you know, yeah, uh, do well. But uh, I, I feel like it will. I mean, the first one did so well and it was honestly a really good movie um i didn't agree with the last like 20 percent of the movie but um and we can like save that for another time but essentially like you know they laid out an awesome message and then just like shot themselves in the foot with it okay um uh did you see it no i haven't seen it yet i want to it's on my list yeah um we'll wait till you see it or maybe we could just watch it uh, yeah, but good. it is a big franchise movie, so it definitely has a better chance, you know, to do well. Yeah, definitely. Um, but we'll see. You know, I think it's those attendance numbers more than anything else. I think there's a lot of people that don't even know the movie theaters are open. You know what I mean? I yeah, feel like true. they need to start making that more clear. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it was like November or something that the AMC thing said it would automatically start everyone's A-list back up. Uh, uh, they don't, I don't think they're, are they really? Yeah. It was that? like, it was like November or December that they were going to unpause it. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But, um, that'll let everyone know that <laughs> they're yeah. open back up. Uh, no, I mean, honestly, it won't be too hard. I bet they could just run a couple ads on streaming services and stuff that say AMC is back open. Yeah. But they should, you know, they honestly should. Yeah. Anyways, so that's in relation to Dune that we don't know when we're going to get it, but it looks like it'll be a little later than when we even thought we were. Oh, by the so. way, can I say you were totally right? Uh, the uh, critics did come out about Tenant saying that the audio was horrible. You couldn't yeah. hear like 30% of the dialogue. This you is know? a common complaint that's leveled at Nolan, and I like it, frankly. I like that. He sort of does this. Well, he just, I just decides not to change no matter what anyone says. He's like, no, yeah. <laughs> you will not hear my dialogue. Well, that's the thing is like a lot of his dialogue isn't actually important. You yeah. Know? And like you're not supposed to be focused on it. You're supposed to be focused on what's going on more so than the dialogue. Yeah. Um, And that's why he's such a fun director to watch is because there is so much visual going on. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I mean, but I don't I, feel like I, I missed know. anything just because I wasn't able to hear some of this or that, you know? Yeah, and, and even if we missed, like, something small, like, you didn't miss the overall, like, message of the film. Yeah. You know? Um, But I did see it again, and I'm excited to uh, do our recap episode at some point. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, But anyways, that's enough about what's going on now. Uh, we should get to... The point of the episode, and yes. we are going to be talking about my second favorite film of all time. Really? David Fincher's Seven. Yeah, I think right behind No Country for Old Men, this holds the spot. Nice. Um, so a few things about Seven before we dig into the meat of it. Um, this is uh, something I would call this a neo-noir. Um, what, in my opinion, distinguishes a neo-noir 
from a noir is obviously noirs are in black and white. So unless you're yeah. doing black and white, <laughs> it has to be a neo-noir if you want to go for noir. But also you have some several neo-noirs compared to noirs are also not as constrained by the genre elements. Uh, you see a lot of classic noirs use almost all the genre elements. Um, even initially the like the first neo-noirs like Chinatown or so on used like practically all of them. Yeah. Um, but what you have here, I love one element that Fincher really focuses on this one is the city as like an oppressive evil force, you know? Um, yeah. I really love that in this film. And, but the, you know, we're not, we don't have um, things like uh, what, what's the element of a noir, you know, the girl that turns out to be evil, you know? Yeah. Uh, what is yeah. that called again? The, There's a word for that. Um, uh, the, Black Widow? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, Something anyways. like that. Um, uh, I, I guess I, I do want to say that I, I think I kind of disagree that the city's presented as evil. I would say more like um, apathetic, like they were describing in the bar scene. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just there, there's like this lack of care, which I guess if you ask F. Scott Fitzgerald, that's one of the greatest evils. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think I think it is being portrayed as an evil place, though. Frankly, sure. I, I generally think it's being portrayed as this very oppressive environment filled with just vileness, you know. Um, but and that's a, like a, a very characteristic thing of a noir, um, sure. as to portray it that way. Yeah. Also, um, I you know, and I was thinking about my favorite films, and Don't Catch for Old Men is also a neo noir, frankly. So yeah. I, I really love the genre. I should start watching a lot more classic noirs. You know, I have watched a lot of the big ones, but I do love this. Um, also, another interesting thing about this film, the the mystery element of it, you know, because mystery is sort of, a, I would say, packaged under, it's sort of similar how to you said, uh, we might call, you know, these uh, Tenet a mystery film or something. And it's yeah. like, well, that's sort of a part of the subgenre of spy. You know, a spy film. And right, Neo-Noir right. is the same way. But an interesting thing about this film, even though you might say, you know, a Neo-Noir is sort of a subgenre of maybe like crime and mystery together, um, is, well, there is a mystery in here. I like this film because it's sort of just happening to them. They're not really, there's only one moment in this film where they're actually getting the upper hand and they actually follow a clue. And not only that. Yeah. Well, that I mean, particular moment is yeah. sort of dated. Like I sort of always giggle when it happens because Morgan Freeman's just leaning into sh to Brad Pitt and he's like, the FBI, man, they track all the books you take out of the library. <laughs> and we're just like, you know, now in 2020, we're just like, like, we duh. assume that everything's recorded that we do no yeah, matter yeah. what by the government. But um, back then it was a uh, unspeakable. I know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But that's um, an interesting element of this film is everything's just sort of happening to them in many ways. They're sort of experiencing the this um, this this uh, you know this creative work by this evil genius. Um, so, but yeah, you were gonna say yeah. something. Uh, yeah, no, just the one uh, instance where they did get the upper hand. It was almost like this uh, this thing that the person, the serial killer, had no way of knowing about. You know, yeah, like, yeah. He crossed his T's and dotted his eyes at every corner, you know, mm -hmm. and he made sure that he was covered in every single way that he could conceive of. And yeah, it was cool that they kind of like cheated a little bit. You know, yeah, no, exactly. That's how I <laughs> yeah. feel about it too. It was like, 
I don't dislike it, but if I had to say there was one thing I disliked in the film, even though I don't dislike it, it's like they obviously fucking cheated at this moment. It's such a cheat where they're just like, we need to move this forward somehow. Like, <laughs> how about uh, they're tracking library books, you know, <laughs> like so that we can have well, a confrontation. It, it does make sense, though, because back then they wouldn't have had uh, easy access to the Internet. Yeah. Right. The Internet was also more easily tracked because fewer people had it. Yeah, this you is know. like a film in the – it was made in 1995, and it definitely portrays the 90s. Things yeah. do feel 90s. Like However, as long I as will this, say, yeah. Fincher's, Fincher's visual style is so unique that it's not dated. You normally watch a movie in the 90s, and it yeah. looks 90s. Like the film grain looks 90s. This very much – I feel like I was watching this, and I'm like, this is like Gone Girl, but if Gone Girl was shot with celluloid instead of digital in many ways. You I know love what I mean? that like, look, though. I know it's good. It looks so nice. <laughs> I mean, I love the '90s look in general too. Um, oh, okay, but uh, yeah, it's it's one of my favorites just because I think this was like this was right before the DVD era, right? Yeah. So like, I think there it was this point in our time when like you know good films were being appreciated, um, and. You know, it was right before the DVD era. So, like, these producers were going in and trusting these directors to make really well-made films. And they were doing really well in the box office, too. Mm. You know? Um, and I feel like... Uh, it was still the era of mid-budget films as well, which this is one of them. Yeah, yeah. So, like, f- personally, I think, like, the early 90s to the to the mid-2000s is one of my favorite eras of cinema. Um, and it's weird because like I, I almost feel it like solidifying itself as as an actual era, as like we're distancing ourselves from it. Yeah. You know, and like I, I can almost um start to in, in the same way that we can with like the 80s and the 60s and the 70s, you know, differentiate what it looks like. You know, uh-huh. Um, and it's cool that like we're getting far enough away from it to where we can actually do that now, you know? Yeah. And I'm excited for a time period when, but like the thing is, it's like, I felt like it was a time period of quality, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to mimic. Um, Uh, yeah. I mean, you think about it, how many fantastic movies were made in the mid and late nineties. Uh, right. You know, you got matrix in there and all sorts of movies. It's crazy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, I just I just love that look. I love the whole like grunge uh thing. <laughs> too. Yeah. And, and like uh this it's funny because this movie didn't have any like grunge in it except for like the credit sequences. Yeah, you know, it which also were, like, a very super, similar, super uh, grungy, yeah. It has like that industrial music as well, that sort of like industrial rock. Um Yeah, I was actually wondering, is uh did he actually use a nine inch nails song at the beginning? I think, yeah, that's the song in the credit song, the great opening David Fincher credit sequence that he uses in practically all his movies. Um, that yeah. is a nine inch nails. It's a, it's a very evocative opening credit scene. I think it's my favorite of his, but he has so many good ones. You know, you think of a girl with the dragon tattoo, which is almost like James Bond esque. And then, uh, the, yeah. the uh, great JC Eisenberg walk and uh, social network and so on. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, this was, this was Trent Reznor. Nine Inch Nails, uh, yeah, doing the opening. Yeah, no, I, that, I, I've I listened really to that cool. a few times on YouTube, <laughs> just because I like I like this opening sequence. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's really cool though because uh, I feel like Nine Inch Nails, like the one thing that I have to say about Seven, where like you know th- this isn't actually my favorite of David Fincher's movies, and I think the reason why 
is because Trent Reznor is not scoring it. And I'm watching this and I'm like, I'm looking at it and I'm like, if I turned off the volume from this, I'd be hearing Trent Reznor in my head. You know? Mm. <laughs> well, um, Howard Shore is scoring this though, man. Yes. It's pretty yeah. fucking good though. Howard is. Shore is, did a great job on this. There's a lot of scenes. I think of that sequence when they get the fingerprints off of the, the green. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that sequence where the cops are all getting ready and they're all getting in their cars and they're all driving. I love that sequence visually and with the momentum it has. Yeah. About every other time I watch this movie, that sequence really gets me pumped. And yeah. You know what, though? But with the, um, the music that Howard Shore has going right there, I just love it. I think that matches this film just because of the kind of like gravity of what's going on. Yeah. You know, especially when you, um, I, I feel like the score works better on a second watch and this was my second viewing of it. Okay. So I knew what was going to happen um, from, from the get go. And I, I kind of remember having that, uh, having that thought the first time I watched it where I was like, okay. Um, I just felt like, like to me, Dave, David Fincher's, uh, David Fincher and Trent Reznor are like, um, you know, Miyazaki is to Joe Hisaishi and sure. Spielberg is to John Williams. Sure. You know, and like now that I've seen like the social network gone girl, girl with the dragon tattoo, like I can't go back on that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I get it. I um, just think how it's, you know, but who else though? If it has that's to be true, replaced that's by true. somebody. Well, let's make it how short. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, but yeah, it did have this very uh, bigger than life feeling to it, which, like I said, on the second viewing of it is amazing. Well, he you know? uses, I noticed about the music. Oh, wait, hold on, hold on. Before we go yeah. any further, spoiler warning. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have spoilers here. Uh, we're about to probably talk about one in like three seconds. So, sure. you know, if you haven't seen this movie or have somehow not seen the what's in the box meme on the internet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Spoiler um, warning done. Yeah. But the, the music, uh, there is a contrast. One thing that maybe why he didn't use Trent Reznor is because how short is this sort of almost, well, he didn't, he didn't classical. use him at all before the, before, uh, yeah, I know, but social network. Sure, but w maybe one big reason why Howard Shore was used is because Howard Shore is sort of, he has this very classical feel to him. If you think about like the Lord of the Rings soundtrack, it does sort of sound like uh, Wagner or some of these older, almost sure. romantic era composers. And there is this contrast in the music in Seven where in these moments of goodness, you do have like, I think they have a Chopin song at once, however you pronounce his name. They use yeah. this great classical music. And then... They sort of brutalize uh, a sort of a parody of that music is maybe the way I would put it at the yeah. darker moments. And so it creates this sort of dualistic nature in the score. Um, so maybe that's a big reason why he wouldn't have sort of more of an electronic or an, uh, more like keep the industrial music throughout the entire thing. Honestly, uh, I think he does it very well. I don't think he even thought to yet. Um, because maybe using... Uh, using Trent Reznor as a composer was like not like I, I thought it was brilliant of him to do that with uh social network because I think that yeah. was Trent Reznor's first um, time he scored a film. Right. I mean, besides the, besides the uh, what is it? The ghosts album that he released that anyone can use. Yeah. I used a couple of those songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone. Um, yeah. But, uh, 
I, I honestly just don't think he thought to yet. Um, mm-hmm. I want to find who did Zodiac. Um, I w- David Shire. Yeah. When I think of Zodiac, I don't really think about the score, frankly. Yeah, well, Out of all see, the movies, I think of Fight right, Club, right. I think about Seven, I do think about Social Network or Gone Girl. Well, yeah, definitely with all his new ones, just because it's so... Uh, I, I thought it was funny because when it first came out, um, everybody that I knew that was kind of like into scores and uh, music and such, mm-hmm. uh, they were like so pissed that Social Network won best score. But I... I don't think it won best score because it was uh, because it was like so complex or so, um, you know, like so uh, uh, difficult to make, you know, even though even though uh, Trent Reznor is an amazing producer, um, I think just the like the way that Trent Reznor speaks through his mu- music is the exact same way that David Fincher speaks through his film, you know? Okay. And that's why I think, um, I, I think that's, that is what makes a good like filmmaker composer combo is when you have a composer who speaks through their music, the same way that you speak through your films. Right. Um, where Trent Reznor does kind of do the exact th- same thing where he d- takes puts so much effort into creating the exact like perfect sound that creates this, you know, um, very accurate representation of the darker aspects of life. Sure. You know, and that's like when, when, if I told you to like name a director with that, um, right. Fincher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd immediately think Fincher. Right. So that's why I think that those two go so well together. And like, while Howard Shore what did do a great job in the score for Seven, there there are like several points in this film when I was like, oh, that's a really good score. Um, I like to actually point out the uh, the uh, it's not really the ending sequence, but it's like the few scenes leading up to the ending sequence where like uh, uh, Brad Pitt's with his uh, wife. Yeah, he's laying in bed with his yeah. wife. Yeah. And then and then it switches to uh Morgan Freeman and he's like he breaks his metronome and then he's throwing the uh knife into the um dartboard. Yeah. Um and then it I think the next scene was uh the serial killer Kevin Spacey turning himself in, right? Yeah, after you know Morgan Freeman's like I want to see this yeah through the end. Yeah. Right, right. Um but that's what made me uh think that like oh this score works so much better on a second watch right because knowing what's going to happen that score makes so much sense yeah right but um coming from the point of view like of a mystery where you kind of come in and um you don't know what's going to happen yeah um it does create this feeling of uneasiness but like it doesn't really match with what's going on in the scene and i think like I think David Fincher would have, sorry, not David Fincher, uh, Trent Reznor would have done a really good job. And he does, he actually does this in Gone Girl where he makes these like, he, he kind of creates a, um, like a nice sounding melody, you know, but it's offset by these like, um, almost like out of tune, um, notes in the chord where they, it just really gives you this feeling of uneasiness, even though what's happening is sweet. 
right? Yeah. Or or supposedly sweet, right? Um, and like what I like to point out is uh, in Gone Girl, there's this part, there's this uh, score called Sugar Storm, right? And it's basically what plays in there in uh, uh, Roseman Pike's retelling of kind of like how they met and they're like kissing in the sugar storm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, he actually plays that exact same uh, melody. But now it's like all like the melody is fine, but the undercurrent of the song is like all distorted and weird. Right. And he even changes a couple of the chords to, um, you know, make it sound uh basically what he does is he uses like either diminished chords or he like uh detunes the lower uh registers of the chord right or the higher registers of the chord sometimes sure. but um it creates this like you you like know the song you know in your mind you can you remember the song from before but now it sounds all fucked up right and having something like that at that moment would have been awesome and like while you know, I think he used Trent Reznor, um, one of Trent Reznor's songs through Nine Inch Nails at the beginning of this, you know, and I'm not sure if this was the first time he actually worked with Trent Reznor at all, or even like, got well, he probably one. just sampled it, frankly. Right, right. So. And then just got the license to it. But yeah, um, maybe he used his other songs later and then he realized how in sync they were <laughs> um, at some point. But yeah that was the one thing that i felt was like like i felt like howard shore was not as depraved as david fincher is yeah no i get that but i think uh i think the the reason is as i said i think that that dual that dual nature to the music was important whereas when you are listening to social network or gone girl as amazing as it is it is very much uh leaning on one end of it. You know what I mean? Like he does create these beautiful melodies and then he can distort them later as you're saying. Right. But you know, he, he doesn't create um, this almost angelic type music, you know, like you would. I mean, he can, a, I would say that some of the gone. Girl yeah. But like are... in terms of Howard Shores, you know, like can he create something like, like the Lord of the Rings scores, you know what I mean? Like how more almost Wagner, yeah. Wagner can you get uh, well, in that? I, in the I record? do have, and then you contrast it, with distorting it a little bit. I do have, I think my it's own perfect. Theories that, the angelicness from the uh, Lord of the Rings, like j- not that the Lord of the Rings score is bad because it's really, really good, but the angelic quality I think came from Enya. Um, sure. But um, I get what you're saying. Um, I actually think that Trent Reznor is capable. Um, I don't remember the name of the fucking song, um, but he actually has a song where he does like a full orchestral, full orchestral portion um, and it was really, really good. And like, I don't know. I think, I think a lot of people underestimate Trent Reznor a lot. Well, nonetheless, you know? nonetheless, um, well, he didn't, he, know did, he was yeah. used very well <laughs> with that beginning sequence. Um, yeah. that's a, an amazing opening title sequence. Fincher does those on almost all his films and I love them. Yeah. And it definitely sets the tone. All those inserts, by the way, Fincher is the king of great inserts in his films. And oh yeah. They're littered all over in seven, but that opening sequence as well, it's just sort of insert after insert, as opposed to some of them that are like maybe animated, like girl, with the dragon tattoo or so on. Yeah. And it really sets up this sort of depraved, disturbed tone for the rest of the film mm-hmm. um, with that music. And it's very good. That music does sort of feel like you get um, it almost sort of feels like uh, 
you're at sort of like some BDSM <laughs> club yeah. or something. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, and you definitely. get that vibe later in the film when they had the, well, we'll get to that, you know, but the, the leather, the leather store. Um, yeah. But it's very good. I mean, I like the score. Um, I also like the, the music that they uh, licensed to get in here. I, I assume some of it's free as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I imagine you think about it, if he had had that idea and a Trent Reznor would have been open for it back then in 1995, maybe yeah. it would have been better, but either way, I think it's a fantastic score and it does its job really well. It's a lot better than most scores I listen to. Frankly. I wonder if he, so. I wonder if he did ask him and because that was kind of like the height of nine inch nails. Right. So yeah, but would he have done I'm, it? If right. It that's what height? I'm saying is like, <laughs> that's what I'm saying is like, maybe Trent Reznor was like, no, <laughs> I'm touring. <Yeah. laughs> but I um, mean, speaking about like heights of and everything, it's important to remind ourselves about seven as well, that yeah. uh, before this film, David Finch only had one other film and that was Alien 3 and Alien 3 was taken away from him. So in yeah. many ways, seven is David Fincher's first real film. And you crazy. just think about that. Seven is David Fincher's first real film. Yeah. yeah. Like, one <laughs> <that> right? <laughs> yeah, it's insane. It's insanely good. I remember, um, well, not I remember when I was watching it this last time, that opening sequence is amazing. Right before we get the title sequence with the uh, Trent Reznor. Yeah. Um, when it's just Morgan Freeman getting ready in the morning and you have, you know, all the sound of the impressive environment the city as this evil force almost. And right. then he's driving to the crime scene. You know, there's that dead person on the ground. The wife killed him. was a crime of fat passion. He has some banter back and forth with another detective. And he's like, yeah, that, that's a lot of passion on the wall there. And then of course he sees <laughs> the child's drawing and he asks the other detective, did the child see it? And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? This is why no one likes you. And we're all happy to see you go. Yeah. Stupid right, right. questions like this. Right. And then as he's walking out, we got Brad Pitt, right? And Brad Pitt is eager and he's ready to go and he wants to fight. And Morgan Freeman's like, why the fuck did you come here? Like, I just don't understand it. And then boom, that's the end of the opening sequence. And then we go <laughs> into the title sequence. Like, it's a beautiful opening sequence to set yeah, it up, you know, definitely. especially because when you think about all the movies that start off with a bang, you know, yeah. and this is not a bang at all. And yet it grabs you and it tells you everything you need to know right at the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, that's actually... One thing that I think uh, David Fincher is a master at and the reason why I always find it so like easy to watch his films and you're kind of just gripped all the way through is yeah. he is a master at delivering exposition mm -hmm. like in, in like a way that's exciting and fun, which like most people don't think of connecting exposition and fun and exciting together, you know? Yeah. But like that is i think his str maybe strongest suit is his ability to um like even beyond his perfectionism right yeah. um like if he were to lose everything like if he were to lose every ability that he had but retain his ability to deliver excellent exposition i think his movies would still be very enjoyable to watch absolutely you know one thing as well adding on to that you know just his perfectionism that he's firing in all barrels at the same time uh, is he is acutely aware as a director. And I never have this in mind. And it's something I really want to drill into my head. He's, you know, it's, it's similar to editing the scene in your mind while you're shooting it, but it's a little different where he has the amount of time he wants the shot to take, 
you know, or the yeah. conversation to take in mind while he's shooting it. Right. So that adds on to like how easy and how gripping it is to watch it because like, he's literally paced this out to like the second, you know, in terms of its rhythm and so on. And he knows exactly how long he wants this to be to get to that and how long that this is going to be in order to get to that, you know, yeah. as opposed to when you think a lot of like, um, when you think of shooting, I don't think a lot of directors necessarily think about that. I think they show up on set and they sort of <laughs> shoot whatever seems like is good at the moment. And then in editing, they may want to fucking kill themselves because this is two minutes too long, you know? Right. And they did this take with the actor two minutes too long in every single shot. And what are they going to do? You know, but Fincher has that dialed the fuck in. He knows exactly how long he wants it to be. He's so in control of that flow of the film. Um, it's crazy. Yeah. Um, the one, the other thing that I really love about him is, is like you were kind of saying this earlier, is his uh, cutaways, um, yeah, the inserts. Yeah, yeah. I that's that's always been something that I really loved about Fincher, and that's something that I that's one element that I brought into my own filmmaking where I'm like, I really love the idea of the insert. You know, mm-hmm. I, I kind of wonder if Dave Fincher. He probably films all of them himself. I, I feel like he's too much of a like a perfectionist not to. I mean, not that he I'd holds imagine. a camera, but like that. He's I don't think yeah, he they're planning a B unit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he uses a B unit. I think I, I'm. Maybe he might, but he's still probably in control somehow. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. There is some even like not even cutaways, but some of the cutaways are some of the most beautiful shots in this film. But there, I particularly think of that one shot where. Um, Kevin Spacey, you know, surprise, surprise, Kevin Spacey's the bad guy in this, is holding the gun down on Brad Pitt, you know? Yeah. And you get that you get that shot of the gun and it's angled upwards and it's almost a hero shot on Kevin Spacey, but he's right. silhouetted. That's a beautiful shot with the light and the reflection on the gun in the water, you know? Yeah. It's so gorgeous. I just they also did like, a really good job at hiding his it. face in all the yeah. other scenes that he was in. Well, that's an interesting thing in general is Kevin Spacey uh, – when he was signed onto this film, him and Fincher, uh, they talked and Kevin Spacey forwent his credit. So no one knew he was in the film until, you know, detective at the very end, <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's so cool. I, I think that's really cool as a way of just hiding, especially in today. They did that in the mid nineties, you know, yeah. like what you would have to do today in order to hide that you would have to essentially hire on Kevin Spacey, but like put it out to the press that he's like some other role, you know? Right. And like hire some actor that's a side actor, but like have him be the guy that's the serial <laughs> killer, you know? Right. That's how you'd have to hide it because there's no way of hiding that like Kevin Spacey's on your production in the modern day. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. So, that you know, it's true. just really cool. And then, of course, he gets the first credit at the very end uh, because he forewent at the, for the, both, you know, the advertising credit and the opening right. credit sequence. Right, right. Is he even on the MDB? I don't. Oh, there he is. Yeah. Yeah, he he's gotta be on that. It's kinda low down there, but John Doe, right? It's another it's another uh great name for a character. John so what do we got? We got driver, we got John Doe, <laughs> we got protagonist. <laughs> yeah. I love it when that when that's the case. Yeah. Um, um what else is before we get into the meat, do you have anything else about Fincher or Seven? Um, before we get into the meaning, the meat of it? Um what was it talking about before we went into the inserts? The cut-ins. Uh, oh, I don't know. Uh, oh. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> oh, we were talking about like momentum and how he makes he grips you. Oh, the pacing. And, yeah. No. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and then his 
ability to deliver exposition. But I, I think that first scene that you were talking about is a great um, exemplifier of that, you know, and yeah, no, I think it, I, I think that might be part of the reason why uh, it's hard for the West to make really good mystery movies these days. Yeah. Um, is because we, we have this uh, thought here that we have to get all of our exposition out in the first 15 minutes. Sure. You know, and David Fincher does not do that at all. Right. You're getting exposition at minute 30. You're getting exposition at an hour and 47 minutes in, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like it, it's going to be um, highly expository the whole time, you know, but you don't realize it because everything. And, and I think that actually is maybe one of the reasons that he's such a perfectionist is because when you are being highly expository and um, I know this from experience because uh, like a lot of my films are also highly expository um, that I write at least, you know, and yeah. um, when I was making Reaper, which is another highly expository film. And I would say is um, actually in a similar vein where like a lot of the exposition comes later um, in the film. Um, And Mm -hmm. actually I would say is a mystery film. You know, okay. um, but one of the, one of the big problems that I had was uh, um, trying to get, or I guess not, I shouldn't say problems, but one of the big uh, tribulations that I had to overcome, right? Yeah. Um, was that when you're trying to deliver exposition later, you almost have to find a way to create an, um, an avenue in the story where uh, things happen naturally, but give you the exposition that you need as well, you know, mm-hmm. because you don't want to, you don't want to just rely on exposition dumps the entire time. Cause that's awful. Right. Mm-hmm. But um, like I, one of the scenes that I love is the, when uh, Brad Pitt's uh, wife, Gwyneth Paltrow, Paltrow, Paltrow. Yeah. Um, she invites, Morgan Freeman over for um, a late supper. Right. Mm. And they have this moment where they get to actually talk. And, you know, it's like the one time that you actually hear laughing in this film, which that scene is amazing, by the way. Yeah. Um, Just because before that, it's, it's like they're Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman are so separated. And I like, mean, that scene lays so much groundwork for later on. Right. There's like maybe three scenes like that in this film. Maybe I would say maybe four, actually. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize how important those scenes are until the very end of the movie. But right. They set it all up. I mean, I mean, I, I'll let you go back on it in a second here. Yeah, yeah. But in many ways, the movie is about those four scenes and the rest of the movie is sort of like almost disguising the fact that that's what the movie's really about, you know, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, but um, kind of having all of them come together um, in that moment, right? That was a, like you get so much about these characters from that dinner party, right? And uh, so much that wasn't um, laid out at the beginning, like you would have for a lot of other films, mm-hmm. right? Like if this was a Marvel movie, we would ha- we would have had all that crammed into the first 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. Um, and then as opposed, you know, and instead we got this incredible tone. We got this feeling of the city. 
his feeling yeah. of Morgan Freeman's life and his context to his coworkers. And that was really it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he he not only because this scene a lot of the times, like you would say, you need to have exposition before this kind of scene because this is a scene where you know characters are coming together. This is a scene where you know you have to already know these characters to enjoy it. But Fincher just knows this, like basically does uh, something that I've always admired about him is that he he knows exactly how much ex- exposition you need in order to feel involved in the scene, mm-hmm. right? And so he gives you exactly the amount of information that you need to feel involved in the scene. And then he gives you this scene that's very enjoyable to watch while also dumping more exposition on you without you even realizing it. Yeah. Right. And like the groundwork laid for these characters, like kind of the, uh, sorry, the expositional groundwork laid in this scene is what allows us to get like, for example, the diner scene later. Yeah. Right? And, um, and what allows them even to begin working together, you know? Right. Exactly. Of, I mean, in many ways, it's almost the inciting incident, even though it's not, but it's like the genuine inciting incident, you know, right. That right. scene had it happened. If she hadn't invited them over, we wouldn't have a movie, you know? <laughs> so. Right. But um, I mean, but that's, that's with, I would say, I would argue that that's with every scene. Right. And that's sure. why, that's why it's like, it's, it feels like such a masterpiece is because every single detail is so tightly woven, yeah. you know? And uh, I'd say Fincher's delivered that um, in almost every film, if not every film yeah, um, that he's made. No, I agree. But I think I in mean, particular, it's, it's so masterful. I, I think in particular, this one um, and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and Zodiac. And Gun. Um, <laughs> and Fight Club and Panic Room. And uh, I, I would say Terry's <laughs> case, Benjamin Button. No, I'm joking. Well, I, w- I would say that like Gone Girl and Fight Club are a little less exposed. Actually, you know what? You're right. Gone Girl, too. Gone Girl has a lot of exposition. Yeah. In fact, you like know what? Fight Club. Half no, you're right. You're right. It's, <laughs> it's, it's all, just all of it. It's yeah. all good. <laughs> um, um, but I think this film and Girl with the Dragon Tattoo in particular have this like excellent use of um kind of laying down the foundation of new things while kind of playing off the foundation of things that you've already set down you know it's it's always this simultaneous thing and you have both things happening in every scene all the way till the end yeah you know and it's so it's so difficult to do and it's something that i've always admired about him and like um I hope to achieve like one tenth of, you know, in, sure. in Reaper. But uh, I mean, talking about that scene, you know, we, we mentioned earlier on about the sort of cheating they did with the whole scene where they bribe an FBI agent to give them library records to track down John Doe, who was Kevin Spacey. But uh, I was when I was watching this film, not only did I think that was cheating, even though I really liked it. I mean, I begin to realize this movie sort of teaching you how to cheat in many ways if you're a filmmaker, because in that same scene. The scene where Gwyneth Paltrow invites them over, invites Morgan Freeman over for dinner, and they yeah. all become friends. They're cheating there as well. I mean, you, that's the scene where you get your laughter, but the laughter happens simply because you know the writer decided to make it that they got screwed over by a real estate agent, and they're right above the subway, and their building starts shaking. You know what I mean? Right, right. So there's a, there's an amazing um, quality to this film where these genuine moments that they have that are very good and do propel the story in genuine ways, powerful ways, 
are sort of just like, yeah, you know what? We're just going to do that because it's going to work and that's what matters, you know? And we'll just, right. we'll just make sure we'll pull it off and we'll do more than pull it off. Well, and so. I would say, uh, Fincher is one of those, uh, guys who's like heavily, heavily, heavily on the plot side of things. Right. Um, well, that's an interesting thing. I actually wanted to bring that up next. Um, sure. I agree with you. Fincher is, I think he's a master, frankly. So we can say that he's on the plot side of things. I see what you're saying there, but he's obviously mastered. Um, well, it's, both a, it's, sides a, of the it's thing. a tentpole thing, right? Where like, yeah, that might be the highest point in his abilities, but like everything else that he does is still far beyond like yeah. what a lot of other people are doing. Like his, sure. His characters are so, so good. And yeah, like a lot of directors that coin themselves character directors would pale in comparison to um, his characters. You know? Sure. Um, Absolutely. But one thing I wanted to say specifically about plot and character in this movie, which I think is incredibly interesting is I feel like out of all of Fincher's movies with the possible exception of fight club, this might be, his most character driven movie, frankly. And it's interesting oh, because it's hidden to me. It's hidden to me because what you see when you're watching the movie, they are not really solving a mystery. In fact, the only thing uh, they're doing is either playing into John Doe's hands, doing exactly what he wants them to do. Yeah. Or they do the FBI trick and they find him at his apartment. Otherwise they are sort of going through the motions as Morgan Freeman puts it at one point in the movie as picking up the pieces, writing it all down. Um, you know, what they're actually doing is, is that. And so the, the plot there is really a way of propelling these great character moments. Um, and ultimately this character arcs, cause what it is with the conclusion of this film is, is Brad Pitt's Morgan Freeman's and in a sense, even Kevin Spacey's character arc. That's the end of the movie is the conclusion of these character arcs that are started in the very beginning sequence when Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt meet. Yeah, um, I would argue that's, the, that's the also the conclusion of the plot. And that's just. A, a, but the plot's there as, as a way of supporting it. You know what I mean? Because well, it's there a isn't like revelation. David Fincher's prowess. <laughs> yeah, in, like, in all in all areas. And I'd agree with you that in many ways you probably would describe him as a plot director. But in this movie in particular, I find it unique because what you would normally do when you're watching a noir or a mystery movie uh, is you would be and like Chinatown have grand revelations of plot that the character sort of figures out in this mystery like elements. But in this one, as opposed to that, things are happening to them that make them have these big character moments that make them argue about uh, futility and, you know, the meaning of life at a bar and make them confront this guy and have to deal with the, the, the crescendo of those moments uh, as who they are as people, as opposed to, you know, putting the pieces together correctly, like in the girl with the dragon tattoo, you know, yeah, or so on. I, I don't know. I, I think I'd, I'd argue a little bit that I'm not sure that plot and character are such a dichotomy, you know? Um, I mean, I'm not presenting it that way. I'm just sure. saying ultimately that what is serving what in, in this movie more is I think the character arcs, are being served or the more are in a sense, what, what is the climax really? Is it the characters, you know, or is it like a plot? You know, like if you're watching a heist movie, it's almost always the plot, you know, yeah. and this one, the climax is the conclusion of the character arcs. Yeah. Uh, I think actually they happen both the same time, you know, climax of the plot, climax of the characters, especially in this film. Yeah. But, 
No, I get what you're saying, but what what's the what's the moment that's highlighted? You know what I mean? Like, where is the audience getting their satisfaction? Um, well, I, I think it's because it's uh, I think it's because they're so tightly interwoven in that final moment because, like, you know, the plots about John Doe's plan and his his uh, his sermon, if you will, to the world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it reaches its climax at the exact same time that uh, Brad Pitt's character also reaches his climax. You know, yeah, because um, I like I'm saying it's sort of subservient to it to that yeah. aspect of the film. Um, but I would I would argue that maybe uh, like I don't think that um, Somerset or John Doe like I don't think that their characters peaked at that moment either. Really, I think Somerset's died. You do? I think he absolutely did. Yeah, I think he went through a, a complete character arc in oh. that moment. I mean, I I just feel like. I wouldn't really describe it as a climax uh, for, for Somerset at least. Um, I would, I mean, I mean in that moment where he opens the box and he realized what's happening, he's like, don't come down here. You know, John Doe has the upper hand. John Doe has the helper hand mills, throw your gun down. You know, right, I think right. in that moment he has a tremendous. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a big where, moment, but I, I personally, I feel like the climax is when, um, when, uh, Brad Pitt, David, um, and him were in, at the bar, and he kind of just lays into him a little bit, and then you know it's the what is it like the next day when he throws his metronome at the ground, and he's like obviously contemplating his whole life. <laughs> sure, you know, um, but and, like, and then, that's not the ultimate end of his climax, though, because what happens is Kevin Spacey perverts that, you know, he twists that at the very end. And so what you have is you have Somerset sort of going back a little bit on what Mills said to him back to more of his original position. Um, but not entirely, you know, he has a full, well, you know, at the end when Mills is going, um, you know, uh, I don't think you believe these things and therefore you're quitting. I think you're quitting. So you say, you believe these things, you know, and, yeah. For the audience, that's this is Somerset being like, oh, I just want to go to a log cabin in the woods and leave behind. Uh, there's nothing that we're doing that's positive. We can't. You well, know, Mills is right. Man. Right. About um, him. Well, Mills is right. You know, Mills is right in a way. That's what that's what's genius about this film. Right. Mill, you definitely empathize with Mills, side with Mills. Um, and that's what Somerset gets as well. And he's like, you know what? You're right. I want to fight. And then at the very end of it all here with Kevin Spacey, you know, Kevin Spacey, you know, he twists at the very end and he twists um, Mills sort of naivety and his crusader like nature in order to prove his own point. Right. And so Somerset at the very end there, you know, well, he agrees with Mills ultimately that, hey, yeah, you actually do got to fight. It's not a good world. He, there's a middle ground that Somerset reaches where it's not where he was immediately after Mills told him off. And it's not where he was at the beginning. He's at this middle ground, which is in, I think the message of the film is personified in the last bit of dialogue by Somerset, right? Yeah. What was it? Um, Ernest uh, Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting a for. A beautiful place. I agree with the second place. No, right, it's a fine right. place. And then he it's ends up place. staying on the police force, right? Um, yeah. But and, but that's the that's the personification, which is not what Mills would say, you know. So um, it's no, half of no, what Mills would but say. But that's that's why I think that like this whole film is about Somerset's journey, right? I, I, I would I would argue, right? And 
He's definitely the main character. Um, and I think that, uh, what's it called? Uh, Somerset and John Doe are really the ones um, that we should focus in on because I think that they um, essentially agree on a They lot. do. I was thinking about um, this. It's a Venn diagram. This movie is sort of like a Venn diagram between our three guys. Right. And they each share. I don't know what's in the middle is my thing. Well, I would so say it's Somerset. just my idea. Well, Somerset. Oh, okay. Well, I was thinking Somerset in terms of the three circles. We have Somerset, Kevin Spacey as John Doe, well, and Mills. I, I would say that um, it's two circles um, kind of looking at um, two, oh, en- two ends of a Mills spectrum. Mills and John Doe and Somerset's right. in the middle. Right, right. Where, like, where uh, Mills and John Doe are kind of two opposite sides of righteousness. Right. Where um, mm. you have right in the middle a man who like is essentially quitting right who's quitting the fight yeah um and then on either side you have these two men that could never right yeah it's interesting Um, you know my original thinking with the the three venn diagram was to say okay mills and john doe would share what you described as righteousness i was going to describe as a sort of a crusading like nature what mills and somerset share is that they're on the ultimate right side. You know, they're not fucking evil. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. And what uh, Somerset and John Doe share is an understanding of the evilness of the world and, you, exa- you know, yeah. uh, how dark it is and well, sort of what, what would be required. Right, exactly. That's actually exactly what I'd say, except um, I would just say that it's literally just um, that, like, essentially this is – a dichotomy between two um like two parts of ourselves right where it's the the evil of the world and the evil of the self right and i mean that's crazy we're we're getting um, crazy close into how we think about this film yeah <laughs> at the end of this film i was like this film's like as if like a, a guy wrote a film about three different aspects of himself arguing with himself you know <laughs> right, like, right. <laughs> but but mills yeah. is this uh is like a side that is on like that has the good in the self and sees the desire to be a hero. Right. And sees the world as a good place that is worth saving. Right. Mm -hmm. And then Mills is kind of in the middle where he's like good of self and then sees the world as as this place. You mean Somerset? Somerset. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, Is this person that is like good and has like the good of the self and then like sees the evil of the world. And then, uh, John Doe is one that sees the evil of the world and has evil of self, you know, where, yeah. Um, one wants to punish one wants to save one is given up, you know? Right. Right. Um, and that's why I think i actually, if I, if I can just pu- pull out a little story here, um, I didn't watch this movie for a long time because my dad always told me it was really bad. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> and he, he said it was really bad because it has a, like a horrific ending. Right. Yeah. Um, and it does. <laughs> and well, I actually disagree. I don't think it does. Right. Because like, if you look at it on surface level, it definitely does. Right. But at the end, what ended up happening was um, the man in the middle, I would say the realist. Right. Yeah. Has found a reason to fight. Right. Yeah. No, he and, has a positive arc. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's actually a, um, and frankly, one of the darkest movies I've ever seen, a very positive message, you know, 
Um, and it's well, it goes back to what we were saying about <laughs> I guess like it life be affirming like, movies. Right, right, right. I guess it wouldn't be like positive, positive, but um, you know, having yeah. a ha- having a beautiful world that you're willing to fight for. That's that's Mill's whole character, right? Yeah. He has a beautiful wife. He like, you know, thinks that they'll just make it work here. It's great. You know, he thinks like highly of himself and his abilities and you know he's he's gonna be here and he's gonna fight and he's gonna make a change right and that's his whole outlook and i think that's the outlook of of a lot of people you know as they avert their eyes from the darkness of the world and the darkness destroys them Um, well mills is uh, absolutely the sort of stereotypical film hero you know right um and that's one of the great things about this film is is sort of it not denigrates, but cautions on that sort of perspective. Yeah. Um, I think anyone that averts their eyes from the darkness of the world is kind of doomed to Mill's fate. Um, yeah, he's doomed to becoming a, a Kevin Spacey, you know, in, right. in many ways, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. You know, they're both in a sense heroes. One's just been broken and one hasn't yet, you know? Right. So, um but uh yeah i mean i'm not sure if i would necessarily say that he's broken um i don't think i don't think it's about being broken or not broken i think there's definitely something that has to do with um that has to do with some uh righteousness right or some perceived righteousness um and it's almost like they they have the same view on things from different um different points of standing right where both of them perceive themselves to be better than the people around them right um, yeah i mean well this is the thing this is why i mean maybe breaking isn't an accurate word but it's i would say john doe is self-righteous well, Mills is righteous, you sure. know, and yeah. and becomes self-righteous. In that moment that he's broken, he becomes self-righteous. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, going yeah. to it, you know, going to an earlier point, you could go on if you want, but Not going good. to an earlier point, I mean, I think this is why, and I agree with you, obviously plot and character are intertwined and you can't disentangle them, And but you have to talk about elements of the film, right? Yeah. So, I could talk about an element of a film and someone can say to me, oh, but you're, you're, you know, you're taking this part of the film out of context out of all the other parts of the film, you know, and that's fair at one, at one point, but also then you're sort of limited in your ability to talk about a film. And so that's what I mean when I say, this is what the film is about. It's about these three guys yeah. more than anything else. And the plot, the plot exists, but it exists in subserv- in a subservient nature to these characters. Whereas I would say you could, you could uh, identify other movies where it's the reverse and that's not a bad thing yeah. or a good thing. It just is that way in this one. And that's unique for a Fincher film where the it, the plot is really sort of just happening to these guys as well. You know, when you think about writing this movie, you're just like, okay. And so John Doe kills another person and now they're going on to that. Okay. Now John Doe kills another person and now they're experiencing that, you know? Yeah. I guess, um, I guess they're the not plot generating might. the plot themselves um and that's what i mean mainly their experience and our experience with them is their character arcs sure uh i guess the plot i would say is more um since since it is kind of like a noir crime mystery um i would say in those 
actually we we had this conversation a little bit ago where we were talking about um perhaps that mystery and thriller are two opposites you know where uh well i think it's a noir number one and i think noir is actually a little bit more about that main character compared to a mystery film well all i was going to say is that like a mystery becomes it, it almost like uh starts from all these branches and then collapses into a single point whereas sure. a a thriller kind of just starts exploding out uncontrollably you know? yeah. <laughs> um but you know we'd have to talk more about that and that's just a we definitely so want to do but an episode on genre we definitely yeah. want to we should each sort of sketch out our theories of genre and give like a monologue on them and then dig in you know, okay dig yeah. in the disagreements from there you know? sure sure um but uh all i wanted to say is that like in terms of plot um this is since it is i would consider this 100 percent a mystery film right um, i would call it a noir a neo-noir uh well i mean it, it's it can be both right um, I, I, I would argue that most noirs are mystery films. Well, I would say, um, uh, a neo-noir is a subgenre of both crime and mystery. Um, sure. it's similar to saying a spy film is a mystery film. It's like, well, yeah, but mystery is sort of a part of it. You know, it's a part of the, so mystery is like it's greater place. genre. Um, yeah, mystery is its own genre in itself. There's elements of mystery in, in neo-noir. I wouldn't so, just say it's a mystery. I guess all I would say is that the the key part of mystery for me is that in plot, you know, you're essentially looking for clues in order to uncover, right? And um, while I would say that this has a bit more of a, uh, you know, uh, it's actually pretty similar to Gone Girl, um, or at least the first half of Gone Girl, where you're kind of just chasing down the clues, or, or Zodiac, for example, right? Um, well, even in this one, John Doe, all the clues they find, John Doe wanted them to find. The only clue they find that John Doe didn't want them to find is the one they used the FBI for the library list. I mean, it's the only time. Regardless of the intention of the clues, there's still clues and they're still uncovering stuff, right? Yeah, but so, it's a little bit of a subversion. Whereas when you're watching something like Knives Out, he is sort of finding things on his own and he is using that. And you and the audience sort of experience that with him. Like sure. some of them and not all of them, but in, as in this one, you know, they're constantly talking about, oh, he's fucking laughing at us, you know, because they they themselves are recognizing that they're going through the motions to the day. There's that one where the uh, the drug dealing pederast, as John Doe puts it when he's talking yeah, yeah. about him, they have he has a mark to the day on the um, on the photos when they enter the apartment. Right, right. Uh, for one year. You know? Um, Yeah. So all I mean, though, is that like we're uncovering things in order to get to um get to a final conclusion and regardless of whether those clues were intentional or not you know um it does have that um same structure uh plot wise um, yeah it's a similar i would agree i mean i agree but it's a it's similar um to exactly what you're saying but i would say it is a little subverted and it it's not exactly what you would get out of a traditional mystery movie, you know? Uh, yeah. I mean, if it was only mystery, but you know, if it's a mystery thriller or something, right. Where you do have this element of everything spiraling out of control for some characters while, you know, things are getting put right into the places, um, for Somerset and John Doe, I would say it's a mystery. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, this is why I'm referring to it as a neo-noir. I just don't think mystery does it uh, justice as a description because they don't even solve it. You know, it, John Doe is essentially made them a part of his story. I mean, when they're in that final car ride, which we have to talk about, but when they're in that final car ride and he's talking about people are going to puzzle over and study what I've done for forever, you should thank me because people are going to remember you now. I mean, that's sort of the the story of the film is they're going through the motions of exactly what he wants them to go through. And he makes them a part of it. And the revelation isn't some sort of answer to a mystery because the point of the mystery you were even presented with or what they're investigating is to find him. Right. And he, he, gives he turns himself, himself in. He subverts right. that at the very end. So it's I think it's much more of a neo-noir because it aligns with those elements of dealing with the darkness, dealing with the betrayal, dealing with the failures of friends um, and that sort of thing, as opposed to solving a mystery. Um, and then the ending, you know, it's not about the the traditional ending scene of a mystery or climax of a mystery is the revelation. Um, whereas in this, it's not it's not that traditional revelation of a mystery where things come to light. It's more of a, it's more of almost a, not only character arcs, but like a philosophical statement and these, the different philosophical maybe concepts these characters represent and how they come to conclusion. So, but like we were saying earlier, uh, if Neo, if Neo Noir is a sub genre of mystery, then like, and crime, it it is right. Right. Um, That would mean that this, this movie at its most base, like genre level is crime mystery. Maybe, maybe, maybe Um, I even said that wrong though, because noir technically was its own genre. So maybe it's just the subgenre of noir. I don't know. I don't really know. um, I kind of feel like noir is more of a stylistic thing. Um, No, because it has genre elements, just like maybe an action film does, you know, where there's specific things that set it apart. Yeah. But I think, I, I think those things are too specific. Like I think, for it to be a like kind of like outer level genre, right. Where it's kind of just like this blanket genre. It needs to have very generalized uh, components. Right. So like um, for example, mystery, I, I, I would say is the kind of plot structure where regardless of everybody's intention within the mystery, um, the story revolves around uncovering clues and reaching a conclusion. Right. Um, so what I would say that this is a very good mystery film that doesn't just fall into the generic, um, uh, kind of like cut out of a mystery film. Right. Um, but anyways, the point that I was trying to make is that as far as plot goes, I think the plot follows a very, like a, a fairly standard, uh, mystery, uh, plot structure, right. Where it is about finding clues, following them, uncovering things. Um, and then like, you know, getting new clues, seeing, finding more crimes, putting two and two together, um, you know, and then trying to close in and essentially like, I would say that they, as detectives, uh, failed. They failed to solve the mystery before the criminal got away with his, um, with his plan. Right. And in fact, they didn't even, not only did they fail, uh, they helped him. They were a part right. of his plan. Yeah. And I think that Somerset is the only one that's essentially trying to solve the mystery. 
right? And Mil- Mills is giving it his best shot, but you know he's still thinking like a cop. Um, and Somerset's trying to trying to beat him, right? Mills is just trying to follow him. Um, yeah. And I would say it comes down to that final moment where, like, let's say Somerset had gotten the gun away from Mills, right? Yeah. He knew the second he opened that box, that was the final clue Summer, yeah, Somerset needed to be, essentially understand um, the criminal's plan, the serial killer's plan, right? So yeah. he loses to this serial killer. And I would say that it is kind of this um, um, intellectual battle between Somerset and um, John Doe, right? And if he had been able to stop Mills at the end, uh, he would have won. Yeah. Right. Um, and he would have solved the mystery in time to understand what was happening in order to stop the final murder from happening, which was, you know, of J- the murder of John Doe. But um, no, it, it was, it's like, uh, yeah, it's essentially, that's why I think a lot of this, um, like that's why I, I earlier talked about this moment as being the climax of the plot in in terms of John Doe and Somerset, right? Where like this was this was these this was the uncovering of the final clues, right? However, I think for Mills, this was the climax of his character arc. Right? Yeah, I mean what you said earlier about these things being intertwined and um, the character arc and the the plot or um, oftentimes climax at the same time is correct. I'm just saying what we're focused in on and what is gratifying and what's the point of the film here isn't um, the plot's climax, isn't the end of the plot here with the final clue and the revelation that comes with it. The final moment but of character moment. the resolution um, with the characters and what what happens with these characters and what they represent. And that's just all I'm saying here. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd maybe argue that Somerset is the only character that really matters um, because he's the, he's the character that we're following and that we're seeing essentially grapple with everything. Right. We see Brad Pitt grapple with a lot, frankly. Um, um, but I get what you're saying. I mean, he's definitely the main character um, in that ending scene, as you just described. um you know, he he is presented. It's interesting because when you think about that ending scene, you have a lots of little character moments that essentially prepare you exactly for that ending. Yeah. Um, not only do you have Morgan Freeman commanding Brad Pitt at the beginning with the gluttony guy to go knock on doors because he doesn't want him in there. But you also have that moment after they find Kevin Spacey, John Doe, because of the library records and they track him down to his apartment and then he shoots on them and he breaks Brad Pitt's face and gets away. Morgan Freeman's like, oh, we can't break in the door because we're here illegally. How are we supposed to know that this is his apartment? And then Brad Pitt sort of fakes it. And then at the end, he breaks in anyways. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of, um, you know, foreshadowing, essentially. And that's what I mean uh, as well earlier when I said, like, this film is sort of about four scenes, Um, four scenes sort of set up this film uh, in, in a way that the others just don't, which is, you know, there's the scene with. Um, that you were talking about where Gwyneth Paltrow invites Morgan Freeman over 
with Brad Pitt um, and they have a dinner together. There's a scene where Morgan Freeman and Gwyneth Paltrow go to the diner and then they talk about her being pregnant and whether or not she should get abortion. And Morgan Freeman's like, uh, I don't regret ever getting abortion in the past with my past love, but, um, I absolutely, you know, I no, not that I don't regret it. I think I absolutely know I made the right choice, but I regret it every day. Yeah. That's what he said. Um, and then you also have the scene where the, are you on the bench before they get the fingerprint and they're talking about things. And then when they're at the bar and they're arguing about things and that's what this film is really about to me is these scenes. And then the conclusion of these scenes, the rest of the scenes sort of support these scenes and add on greater context for these scenes. Mm -hmm. But the conclusion of this movie is directly related to those four scenes, in my opinion. Sure. And those four scenes um, have, you know, very little um, to do in many ways with what you would say with the moving forward of the plot of the different plot elements of clue to clue, uh, victim to victim. Yeah, um, that, that's kind of what I was saying, though, that I don't really see plot and character as that much of a dichotomy where like I think um, I, I think we do that when we're looking at films that are not very plot oriented. But I would argue that um, this film is actually a very good example of how character should be interwoven into the plot where like these moments are plot moments, but um the character has to do with the plot so much right very much okay the well then we're from, we're solely at an impasse there so we right. might as well move on well, because actually we have such a radically different way of communicating what we're saying to ourselves then you know sure I, well i mean like i would say for example take uh boogie nights right uh, because we talked about that a lot and i would say that yeah. that's a very good example of showing how plot and character are so separated right mm -hmm. where um, like, I, I guess the way that I see it is almost imagine like imagine dials on a mixer, right? And you're kind of turning up, um, some, um, and turning down others, right? Where I would say Boogie Nights turned down that dial on plot and turned up that dial on character, where, um, where, uh, uh, seven here has kind of equalized both of them and they both come through um you know interwoven through the, the sound right um so I, I think when you have both they become things that you can't really separate out right so like every element of the of the plot here had to do with character right and I mean, I feel like you could describe any movie with that sentence, though. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's why I find this hard right now, because, you know, I we got to be able to distinguish things in order to properly talk about them. And if we combine it to that level, uh, it's yeah. I mean, I could say, well, what the movie is, is essentially every element combined one frame at a time, you know, and well, we what can, am I we supposed can to do with talking about individual elements? Um, but I would say like... Um, I would say plot is like an overall, like, you know, series, right? Where it's like you're looking at the combination of a lot of things, right? And it's basically the overall direction of the film or the script, right? And then in there you have like character events. Um, uh, yeah, I guess maybe maybe what you're kind of describing is 
when I think about plot, I yeah, think yeah. about uh, specific moments. I think of almost like a film running from le- a line running from the beginning to the end of a film and plot are those moments that make scenes lead to the next scenes. Um, but specifically exterior. Um, so it's, you know, the, the fact that this guy has a desire to get rich. So he goes and gets that job who meets this guy who helps him goes and do this. And then he, you know, discovers his desire to get rich character. Yeah, well, the, no, like obviously these things intertwine, and I've I've admitted that point to you, but I want to talk about them separately, and that's where we're having a headbutt moment um, here, because I, I agree, like we could, we absolutely, like I even said, yeah, the climax at the end, of course, that's both the plot and the characters, you know, but I'm trying to talk about these things separately, and you're bringing it up in such a way to intertwine these things together to such a degree that we can't do that. Um, so I think you know, I think this to, this film calls for that though you know where like so much of the plot is character based and um well if the plot is character based then what i said earlier shouldn't really be controversial which is that the plot is subservient to the characters um yeah i get i guess um i i think the the problem that i'm having with that is just that like it's it's still separates that out too much to where like i feel like there are so many plot points in this that are character moments that lead up to you know lead up to like final conclusions and such such Um, i mean maybe what you're describing is like a character arc you know which is the plot of a character you know sort of uh Um, you could put it that way if you wanted to well this is what i mean with fincher's films that like everything is so interwoven um that it's it's really hard to like for example here let me actually talk about someone that we can break it apart with right um when you look at uh uh boogie nights uh paul thomas anderson right yeah when you look at his films he almost does have um scenes that are uh you, you know what? actually this is a better way to describe it i think if you have a film that's a character study, right? You almost turn the plot down and turn like, uh, and you, you'll show almost like random parts of this person's, what seemingly random parts of this person's life or their experience, right? Taxi driver, first man. To, to just like really exemplify this person's character, right? Where when I look at someone like, david fincher right both elements are so interwoven where like you know you do have a very strong plot line right and let's actually talk about something that has um that's like very plot heavy um hold on i'm drawing a blank here uh what's what's a film that you would consider extremely plot heavy uh extremely plot heavy movie um I mean, we could even talk about Tenet, frankly. I think that's a plot sure. m- movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about Tenet. So, uh, actually, let's not talk about Tenet uh, because most people probably haven't seen that yet. Um, <laughs> actually, Christopher Nolan's a good example, though, right? Sure. Um, let's take another one of his films. Uh, Do Interstellar. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so how 
Interstellar, I would say that the plot is cranked up a little higher than character, right? Because you have uh, you have this full um, like moment to moment plot thing where uh, all the exposition. Actually, you know what? Exposition is a good way to figure this out. What does the exposition serve, right? So if you're listening to the exposition and it serves, um, you know, like the things that you were saying, like exterior um, events and such, right? Um, or or like uh, world building, I would say. Um, then I would say that it is a plot heavy film, right? Um, whereas like if you have uh, stuff that gets into character, that's where you have a kind of character heavy film. Like if you look at a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson's films, right? So mm -hmm. if you looked at Christopher Nolan, I would say he's very plot heavy. If you looked at Paul Thomas Anderson, I would say he's very character heavy, right? Sure. For David Fincher, I think he's balanced these perfectly. If you looked at this plot, I wouldn't see a random, uh, like a random grouping of events, right? Everything, all the exposition and such has to do with the external events going on, right? You have all the seven deadly sins. You have this cop that's retiring and like, you have this new cop come in, all these things happen and um, they kind of fall into this serial killer's trap, right? And play into his hands. And that essentially force it or reveals to the detective that he should not quit the police force, mm. right? So like you have a perfectly, um, perfectly laid out plot, right? And also, at the same time, you have perfectly laid out character arcs that all land at the exact same place, right? And I would say that this film isn't, uh, this film can't exist one without the other, right? Where It's an interesting point that you make about exposition being a way we can factor in or uh, decode whether or not a film is aimed at more character or plot and i'll have to think about that um however i would like to point out here that i'm not arguing that um the plot isn't perfect in this movie or something like that um well i would say I it's think as that, i don't think me saying the character that the plot serves the characters more means that you know than the other way around i'm using the word subservient means that the plot isn't perfect or isn't even dialed to a 50 50 mark like you're saying if we if we use dials like on a mixer sure um i'm simply saying what is the essence of this film and what better way to find that the, the very beginning and the very end well it's the conclusion of these characters more so than like take interstellar where it's about you know this idea of mankind um existing and overcoming and transforming with new worlds and new ways of living and new ways of striving you know what i mean um, well, isn't so, that just like whereas a, with this one, it's about the characters. Isn't that just like a uh, like a magnitude scale where you're kind of just coming in and talking about the grandeur of the plot, right? Like, if you were to make a film that was plot oriented around one person, right, it would have to do with their actions, right? Yeah, but um, even take First Man. I would say First Man is 
more, uh, definitely, in my opinion, far more leaning towards a character film than a plot film. Mm. And I don't know, as opposed actually. to as opposed to an interstellar and what what sort of endings, you know, you have a similar, not the same, but similar films. Uh, and what do you have at the ending here? You have a guy coming to terms with his own life and with the people he's had to leave behind and his grief, as opposed to, well, you have something very similar in Interstellar where he gets to meet his daughter on her deathbed and he keeps to keep his promise. The full, the, you know, the, the full thrust, uh, the emotional climax is also in the idea behind striving and creating a new and this sort of thing. Um, and it's not focused particularly in an emotional climax of the character. Um, and once again, I'm not saying this is to say the plot's worse than the character or the character's worse than the plot. They could both be perfect. It's just what, how would I describe the film? You know? So are you saying that the ending is kind of what drives you into character or plot? In many ways. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I would call Paul Thomas Anderson movies, character movies. I think about the end of the master It's Joaquin Phoenix having escaped and, you know, and going on and having a good moment with a, uh, a woman in bed. You know, I think about the end of Boogie Nights and it's Mark Wahlberg coming home and asking for forgiveness and the gang's back together. And it actually looks like their lives might, you know, turn out all right. Yeah. Um, and Whereas, you know, if I think about the ending of some of these more plot-heavy movies uh, or, you know, plot-focused, whatever we want to call it, uh, it's a little different. That's not just – that's not the case, you know, if you look at Interstellar. So what what would you say, like, a small-scale plot-oriented film is? Oh, small-scale? So rather than taking something like Interstellar. Right, you know I mean? right. Like that has, like, a big idea. Well, let's think of a small – a small scale plot film. Um, Maybe Memento. I, Memento's hard though, because Memento is so like first person, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, well, that's, that's why I'm saying that. Like, I feel like. I, it could be a Memento. It's been a while since I've seen Memento though. So I, I don't. Yeah. It's probably been like five years. Since okay. Um, um, Let's think about Actually, something else. Let's like go a heist for, movie. I would say Drive is plot oriented. Um, okay, well, let's not talk about that then. Uh, <laughs> we can't talk for hours about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, anyways, um, my point here uh, is that I like, was thinking maybe a, a heist movie we could say is a plot oriented movie. So if you think about like the ending of the Oceans movie, your emotional climax comes in that conclusion of where the reveal of how they did it. You know, I, I, um, no, I think the the end of Oceans was all of them basking their success yeah. together. Uh, in front yeah, of no, me. that's there. That's there. But that's sort of like it's similar to the scene where Somerset is talking to the chief and then has his quote. You know what I mean? Like that isn't the climax. I don't know. I feel like that's a little like I, I feel like you're picking and choosing a little bit because if it is the final scene, then we have to always go with the final scene. Right. But it's not it's not um, the fun it's not always the final scene though uh i would Climaxes say for example for this film if if it ended with mills shooting him and credits rolled um i would say that it probably feels like a character film right but it having to do with a detective leaving the force and then choosing to stay and fight um 
don't know that that seems a little more um plot oriented too really i don't i don't see that at all <laughs> um i mean we should talk about this more i mean well, frankly let's do an entire episode on that uh sure um, sure but i think we've talked to death about this particular film and there's other things we should talk about when it comes to seven before we uh roll this out because we've been talking about this particular topic for like 40 some minutes i mean now. that's okay it's it's but there's other things i want to talk about sure sure but hold on before we leave it i think that maybe what you're doing is you're getting caught up in the grandness of the end of the plot and saying that if the plot is um of of uh large sized at the end where like the reveal or, or the ending of it surmounts to something that is like global in scale then it's a plot oriented movie but if it's uh smaller Right. Like if it exists on a uh, within a singular person's um, arc, whether it's their plot arc or their character arc, then it's character oriented. Right. No, I mean, I used oceans and I would say other things like maybe knives out. I mean, I'm looking at Fincher's page here. I think about Panic Room. Um, I even think about uh, Zodiac, frankly, there. These are not, you know, big films uh, in the sense that Interstellar is. And I would call them plot films because I think. their climaxes have more to do in essence with plot. So um, I'm actually going to disagree with you on Zodiac, but um, just because I feel like that has so much to do with the character of the. Um, well, it's both. And this is why I didn't disagree with you earlier. And I made the clarification. I wasn't disagreeing that when you have a climax, Guess what? The climax, if it's done right, <laughs> according to practically uh, almost all films, I'm sure there's some great exceptions out there. They happen pretty much at the same time. You know, um, I'm just talking about what is sort of subservient. What's like what's the primary thing that we're taking away here? Is it like a character transformation or is it a conclusion to uh, the series of events that compromise the the plot? You know, so mm. What's the primary here? Well, I, I guess um, I guess we have to ask ourselves what the plot is then for this film because, like, if it's if the plot is Kevin Spacey's um, journey, then yeah, I would say it's a character film. But for for me, I feel like the plot has to do with um, uh, Morgan Freeman's character, right, and like you were saying, it feels kind of like a noir where he's going through and like struggling with the, uh, the evil of the city, right. Including this new crime that's being unfolded in front of him. Sure. Right. And I would say from beginning scene where he's quitting to the end scene where he's not quitting anymore. Right. Um, I would say the we actually plot, don't know if he's not quitting or so on. That's something I want to talk about, but go ahead and go on. Um, well, he says he'll be around, right? Yeah. And he was planning on moving out to the middle. That's of true, nowhere. but we don't know if he's quitting. Uh, sure. But he'll at least be here to help, right? Yeah. Um, he's there for Mills. Yeah. So I would say that to me, that was the plot, right? What like Somerset's journey was the plot and i think his internal like kind of character arc revolved around um him kind of realizing that he was deluding himself right 
and that his plot arc, you know, his external actions towards the film had to do with his, uh, you know, him quitting him, his interest in this case. Uh, and then finally his decision to stick around. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that's, I think this is why we might need to do an episode and define our terms and think about it more because our disagreement really might just come down to language here, frankly, because everything you described, I would just call a character arc, frankly. Um, and this is why earlier on I said maybe like a character arc, we can refer to that right. as like the plot of the character. That, but that's why I was saying in and of itself. I think I think your your definition skews more towards the gra- like the gravity of the event, right? So like if if one person is interacting with something external, you see it as character. But if like one person is dealing with something external that involves the whole world, then you see it as plot. Or like, you know, not necessarily or, or yeah, something I mean, greater than examples that were not the whole world. What I would sure. call the plot in seven, as opposed to what you just said, yeah. you know, sort of splitting it and Somerset's journey through the film is uh, John Doe's sermon. John Doe's sermon is what propels the film. Right. That's that's what I said is like if you saw the plot as being John Doe's like. um yeah, that's what propels the film. That's but I would say that John Doe is the clues. The that's what makes them go from scene to scene. That's what makes them deal with these things, right? But I would argue so. that John Doe isn't the main character, and we don't see it from his perspective. Sure, but um, uh, absolutely. But that doesn't mean that it's not the plot. Like I'm not saying that. I'm saying that the the whatever you want to call it, his sermon, you know, the killing of these five people and then at the end the seven that you know the additional two to make seven right this is what propels the film and we are obviously seeing it from our two main characters our main character being somerset um but that's the plot this is what makes us go from scene to scene yeah maybe i feel i feel like you're you're taking like the driving force of the film and calling that the plot i think that would be a pretty good definition of plot the driving force yeah, I mean, I want to think about it more. Well, I mean, like, uh, if you but took, I would like that idea. If you took uh, an I, Avatar, James Cameron's Avatar, then wouldn't the plot be, um, like the stripping of natural resources? Well, that's not not necessarily driving. Well, it would be the plot would be um, the fact that there's. Yeah, well, that would be, yeah, that would actually be part of the plot for sure. But I don't know if that would define the entire plot. Yeah, that's how I would put it. I'd have to think about that more. I think part of the plot would be well, that's the, the thing fact that, that he can, there's this technology yeah. where he can become somebody that's alien. And Well, what I mean is like in that film, um, the the uh, pursuit of na- the natural resources on that planet is the is the driving force behind every action taken and what pushes us from scene to scene, right? So like, you know, if he was allowed to just like stay in that village indefinitely and like nothing would happen, uh, he wouldn't. Right. And it's only because the bad guys, which are the uh, settlers, right, come in and push for the natural resources that he's pushed into action. Right. So that's why I would kind of disagree that that's what I'd say that there's a difference between the driving force behind a film um, and the plot of the film. Yeah. I mean, I, the thing is like, I don't even, you know, I like the idea of the driving force as the plot, but that's the first time that's been described to me as what I might be saying here. So 
I don't, I don't even know. Like, I like that idea. I do like the idea that I definitely think of the plot as something that is moving the film forward. For example, like a MacGuffin is an element of plot to me, you know, an object in the film that moves things to get forward. So you think about Pulp Fiction, that briefcase with the gold in it, you know, or whatever is in it, you never see inside of it. Yeah. That is an element of plot because it moves things forward. It keeps things happening. An element um, of plot maybe, but not the plot in my opinion. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. And that's why I'm saying element. So Sure. But I guess where I differ with that is like, I don't think it has to necessarily do with, um, like, I, I think that basically anything that, like, any given character can have a plot arc and a character arc. And basically their plot arc is any external effect that they have on the film, right? And then a character arc is the internal journey that they have within the film. Yeah, right. so I would definitely disagree with that, frankly. I don't think a character arc has to be internal. Um, so, but anyways, we've talked to the death man. Sure. We're we're almost at uh, we're at one forty now, so we should do a quick ten minutes on some other elements sure, sure. of the film and wrap it up. But we could next to genre on the list of things to do episodes about plot and character. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'll just bring it back to this beautiful film. I want to talk about a few people that worked on this film in particular, and then I want to talk about some key scenes that I loved, and we can wrap it up. And if you have anything else as well, uh, sure. Yeah, um, let's just let's just I'm I'm just winging it here, so yeah, let's just go. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Uh, obviously, we've talked about him a lot, but Darius Kanji, the great Darius Kanji, oh yeah, uh, shot this film, and it's beautiful. I know Fincher. I I don't know who he uses now. I forget his name. It's like uh, he has some sort of cinematographer now, but he used Darius Kanji on Seven and Panic Room. Okay. Uh, and I really love Seven. And of course, Darius Kanji recently shot Okja, which yeah. is a very beautiful film. Uncut Gems, which is a fantastic film. And he's also got credits on there like Midnight in Paris and so on and some other amazing things. Um, the cinematographer is Jeff Cron- Cronenworth. Yeah. Or Cronenworth. And he did. That's who Fincher normally uses. It's amazing to me when you see um, Seven, you see Fincher. Fincher is the dominant visual perspective that you're watching this movie, but you do see Kanji as well. Sure. In those yellows and everything. But when you see, you know, the, the fact that I can see this this film seven and still see Gone Girl at the same time, right, just shows you like how how dominating of a factor or how particular he is in his own films, exactly. Yeah. Um, also, I wanted to talk about the editor because I particularly love the editing in this film as well. Mm-hmm. When did you cut the inter- inserts? How they handle the movement of characters in large spaces, uh, you know, and obviously a lot of this is Fincher. You know, the use of the close-up only on very important moments. You know, Fincher refers to it as underlining things. Right. Uh, but we have Richard Francis Bruce, who this is his, probably his biggest film he's known for, depending on who you are. But you also have Shawshank Redemption. Uh, you have Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, The Green Mile. Nice. Oblivion, The Rock, with uh, some of the old Mad Maxes, uh, lots of classic um, action movies. Sure, sure. So, that's a great guy. Um, and we already talked about Howard Shore. And then what I would really like to talk about as well is Kevin Spacey. I know he's a hot button issue right now, and we'll see what happens <laughs> with Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Um, but he's brilliant in this fucking movie. He's so fucking good. And regardless of the moment- how horrible or whatever he is in real life, uh, he is an amazing yeah. actor. 
and yeah. nothing pulls away from his performance in this film. Yeah, he's brilliant. I was I was laughing at, you know, when he's in the car at the very end and you have that, it's almost like eight minutes. I believe that's like an eight minute scene where in their car yeah. and they're going back and forth and they're having their argument with uh, Mills and Somerset being on the same side, you know, and sort of interrogating. Right. Um, John, you know. Oh, John can Howe. I actually interject here for a second? I, yeah, I loved how I, I think um, that scene is a perfect representation of how Mills is playing right in John Doe's hands. And the actual yeah. battle is between John Doe and Somerset because Somerset is actually the one that says the one thing that riles up John Doe. Yeah. Right. Makes him. Yeah. yeah. Makes him think. Where, where he Make, makes him think for a moment. Right. Where he talks about the uh, what the Get, getting pleasure out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Know, the taking joy and torturing right? these people. <laughs> yeah. And he almost has this argument on the same level as um, John Doe, whereas Mills is always just putty in his hands yeah he's he's trying to poke him and he gets poked back right i mean that goes back to what i was even pointing out earlier about certain moments of um mills's character foreshadowing the very ending yeah right there you have it at the very end as well right right where you know at at the end of that car dialogue scene pretty much the end kevin spacey gets the upper hand on mills and is like what you know you're only living because i've allowed you to live (laughs) you know you're a lot you know so thank me for what life i've allowed you to have this sort of thing right right uh and then he goes on to say like i don't pity them you know do i pity the thousands that died at sodom and gomorrah you know right right um but yeah i mean that scene is incredible it's very much one of those youtubeable you youtubeable scenes sure where you could just like put that on and yeah, just watch it again. <laughs> um, what it, one thing I wanted to say was this film is the masterclass of how to shoot in cars. <laughs> <That's a good laughs> Literally, <point. laughs> yeah. There's so much of this movie is shot in cars, and it's beautiful. So many of these car scenes are so fucking beautiful. Um, spe- also, I would say this is a great film for how to shoot water. You know, when it comes mm-hmm. to rain or water on surfaces. Um, but yeah, Kevin Spacey is brilliant in this. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, and I see why Fincher cast him in House of Cards. You know, if I worked with Kevin Spacey and he was that fantastic, you know, yeah. I put him in my back pocket as well and be like, you know, what? one day I'm going to give you the the single best Netflix show. <laughs> right, <laughs> <in> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but this is a. Is this Brad Pitt's last film with him? He wasn't in anything. No, else. Brad Pitt went on to do the Curious Case of Benjamin. Button, oh, right. You're right. You're right. Um, so and Fight Club. That's three that he did with him. They were gonna do another called uh, like the Life Aquatic, whatever, twenty thousand leagues under the sea or something. Okay. For Disney, but Disney owned the rights and they shut it down because Fincher's <laughs> budgets are insane because he wants to do a hundred takes of each shot. You know. Yeah, actually, that's something that I uh, heard about for the diner scene where like they were. Uh, I, I can't remember where I saw it. I think it was an interview with Gwyneth Paltrow, but they were talking about how they did like 47 takes of each shot. And, you know, that's where I first kind of yeah. heard about how Fincher was a uh, per- perfectionist. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause like when I'm shooting, uh, when I'm shooting in Colorado, like people get on my case for shooting more than three, three takes. Yeah. And I'm like, I, I, I feel like at like, <laughs> an average of like seven to 15 takes i'm not actually that much of a perfectionist you know um no yeah that's but, that's completely reasonable right right but like i swear to god some some actors will get on my case about uh about shooting more than more than one sometimes 
where like I mean, dude, you you see the benefits that Fincher gets from it. Like, oh yeah, watch any other Brad Pitt film that Fincher didn't direct. Watch Ben Affleck in another movie that's not Gone Girl. You know, right? You see what the what it does to the performance after forty takes. There is a style of acting, frankly, in my mind, a category of acting, maybe I should say, that is like oh, directed by Fincher acting because yeah. he literally is able through these takes to shave off these the like like almost like a sculptor just to take off these elements that he doesn't like. And they're, they're also, there's a similar quality in everyone's performances in his movie because of that, where all these externalities are just gone that he doesn't want. And he sort of just, he sort of just beats them with the multiple takes, you know, (laughs) it's not like they're not even trying or attempting anything anymore. They're just sort of just doing it according to his timing as well. And it's like stopwatch. I mean, I've had a couple shoots that went into like the forties to sixties in terms of takes. Um, And I kind of like what my thought process was when I was there was like, I, I was almost like looking for something right in that person and i wasn't seeing it and essentially we do like seven to ten takes and then i'd pull them aside and talk to them a little bit and um kind of try to see uh where that took them and then you know maybe i pushed them in the wrong direction so i pulled them back a little bit and i'm like trying to find exactly what i'm looking for you know yeah. and um i wonder if that's kind of where he's going with it is that he's trying to he's trying to see that underlying um that underlying current right and he's keeping that underlying current for the character in mind and when he's watching them act you know he's he knows that this is the shot that came after this shot this is what i want to see here right i'm going to shoot this until i see it right yeah um at least i don't know how david fincher thinks but that's at least how i think (laughs) you know so no i think um, i think that's pretty close i've watched a youtube video an interview of his where he talks about you know, how, you know, those first 10 takes are sort of him making, letting the actor get out what he was thinking of doing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of now, like, there's nothing left. It's, you know, sure. You can figure it out now, you know. Right, right. Um, yeah, because you don't, you don't want someone to have a, a pre-planned notion of how they're going to react to, like, every every yeah. human on the planet can see that, you know. Yeah, I've heard uh, De Niro refer to it as... Uh, the motel acting or the motel performance, you know, the best reading you gave yourself in the mirror in the hotel, you know, the morning. <laughs> right. Right. Shoot. Exactly. Um, yeah. And that's that exact thing is I'm sure why he at least does, you know, at least 10 takes. Yeah. You know, there's such a smoothness though. This is what I mean about like Fincher acting. Yeah. They're also smooth, you know, and it, that goes to his exacting quality, his perfection, how everything is in the perfect everything's perfect you know yeah <laughs> but like the acting is always so smooth in these films and all of his films i wonder like because I, I have my fair share of actors that don't want to work with me again after working with me you know because sure. of how long i took or whatever on the shoot and i just wonder how many actors just like will never work with fincher again um i wonder too i mean i think because he has a big name they do it sure know, yeah. <laughs> uh there are there are big directors where you know actors won't work them. I hear about like Terrence Malick is one. Yeah. Um, simply because he just cuts people out of his fucking movies because he doesn't know what they're going to be until he's in the editing room. You know. Right. Right. And like he'll cut like your entire performance out of the movie. You know, <laughs> like George Clooney was like in the Thin Red Line and then wasn't. You know. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's nuts. I, I've only cut minor characters. I've never uh, I've never cut a main character. 
but yeah, no, it's uh, actually, I feel like since I do like, I definitely lean more towards Fincher than Terrence Malick in terms of how I make sure. film. Um, so like, I really like, I couldn't even conceive of cutting a uh, main character because like they're so <laughs> interwoven into <laughs> into the plot yeah. that like it's it would literally just ruin everything if I cut them. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, well, the important thing to understand is Terrence Malick has this sort of thing in mind when he's shooting as well. Sure, so the way he shoots allows him. I mean, he shoots so much. Those decisions. I, I feel like he is yeah. the definition of coverage. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I mean, which isn't bad. Like, I feel like a lot of people look at coverage and they say that's bad. Um. Well, I mean, let's think about Fincher. Fincher is a pro coverage filmmaker. That's true. He definitely does coverage. Yeah, so. yeah. Um, in a different way, I feel like he goes deeper into coverage, and uh, F- Terrence Malick goes wider into coverage. You know, yeah. where he likes to shoot more different things, and Terrence Malick likes to shoot that one thing over and over and over. Um, yeah. But I mean, it's funny that we talked about them because they are sort of almost polar opposites in many ways. Sure. Yeah. Um even though equally great, you know? Yeah. But then also similar in some ways too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I could see that. I, I just don't think, you know, I could never see Terrence Malick doing a hundred takes to get the thing exactly how it's supposed to be. You know, no, like, no. I, I imagine Terrence Malick is sort of floaty, you know, like floaty and poetic and like, Oh, sure. Like, sure. Let's do this. It's <laughs> like move around here, you know? And Oh, here, I'm just going to read you some lines. And can you say it while looking into the sky? I'm making it up <laughs> as I go, you know? Yeah. Like that's Terrence Malick and he somehow can do it and pull it well, off. But. I, I feel like, I feel like it's just two different styles of filmmaking where like, I think, the meticulousness that Fincher has in production is the same meticulousness that uh, Malik has in production or pre-production or post-production. Sorry. You know, where like, I'm I'm sure that he spends hours and hours and hours and hours on like a single edit being like, it needs to be perfect. Right. Mm. Where like, I'm sure David Fincher already has that planned out and does all that work in production and make sure that it's all, you know, it's all exactly as he wants it. So probably by the time they get into the editing room, it's not, um nearly as much work as like what terrence malick is putting in yeah that's you know? true. but uh, how i see it is just a different um place to put your uh put your concentration right um yeah i see that but because i i kind of want to differentiate what terrence malick does from like uh just like uh a lot of like modern art you know, the kind of thing where they draw like a square. And <laughs> yeah, um, no, I agree with you. It definitely, there is a purpose. I think a lot of it is the purpose of the films, frankly. Right. Like Terrence Malick has a deep meaning and a deep message in mind. And then, whereas a lot of these other people are sort of just posing. Right. Right. And the then poses. he puts the work in, in the editing room. Right. And I'd yeah. say that's actually, um, you know, actually two directors that are similar, but I think put a vast, um there's a vast difference in their degree of work is the guy who directed under the skin and terrence malick right because both of them kind of shoot wide coverage but i felt i feel like terrence malick has a he does more work across the board where uh, i think the guy who directed under the skin hyper focuses on post-production right interesting um well Nick, uh do you have any last things you want to say about seven we should sort of wrap it up here sure um i mean what what should we talk about there's i think we covered it man yeah well, i mean the meaning is obvious like we don't need to dissect the meaning because it's literally stated at right the very end. right um which is cool 
you know, it's cool to have that sometimes in a movie. Uh, yeah, um, no, definitely. Um, uh, other than that, I mean, I would just say watch it. I mean, do you want to like, what's your favorite? My favorite seven. Are you saying your favorite is the girl with the dragon dad too? I, you know, I think so. And it's, it's weird saying that because I feel like a lot of people think that's, that's one of his worst movies. But they haven't seen the game. <laughs> <laughs> but um, like the reason that I think that's that girl with the dragon tattoo is so good is because I feel like you see him kind of like working into this uh, working into these ideas in seven in Zodiac. And I think like the end of girl in, in the end of the girl with the dragon tattoo, the treatment there is beyond masterful right Hmm. it's just like everything that's happening there is just so perfect and i I feel like it's a culmination of a lot of the ideas and a lot of the um uh and and sorry i should explain when i say treatment uh, i know quaid you know this but um when i say treatment i'm talking about the way that a, a a uh event is portrayed right like the angle that you come in on the music that you choose. Um, I personally, like, I think that that was, um, like when you took a star Wars, the last Jedi and everybody was complaining about all the plot stuff. Right. Sure. I think it's actually the treatment of that film that is lacking. Right. Like okay. the plot is actually fairly good. It's just the way that they handled everything was so just cookie cutter. Right. Yeah. And like there was no focus on anything that was important. It was just all like it almost felt uh, random in the way they were treating things. Hmm. And that's actually true with a lot of Disney films. Right. Where they kind of have these rules that they abide by. And those rules work for 80 percent of scenes. Right. But for those remaining 20 percent of the film, they literally just don't make any sense. Right. So if you shoot Hmm. the films that way, there's going to be a disconnect between uh, the events that are happening and the way that the filmmaker is treating those events. Right. And I think that that's, what's um, exciting about filmmakers is their treatment. Right. And what I love to see is uh, kind of the evolution of filmmakers treatment of certain ideas or concepts or situations. Right. And Gone Girl was like, sorry, not Gone Girl. Uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo was like the um, third or fourth time that he got to do the face-to-face with the serial killer, right? Sure. And like the treatment in that film for that scene was so fucking amazing, you know? And I just remember feeling like, I mean, I've seen that film like two or three times. And every single time I just feel like ice cold in that moment it's amazing and like this film you know gives you the creeps and in terms of like the plot and how it's laid out it's fucking amazing right but um in terms of the treatment it's still amazing because it's david fincher but like by the time he got around to gone girl and he had trent reznor and he had like his style locked down he got to you know shoot it using digital yeah exactly and and like everything and then the kind of like I think that's why Fincher works so well for these kind of like colder signs of humanity in terms of story, right? Is because the way that he approaches film is um, also very cold. Yeah. Yeah. There's a dispassionate nature to it. And that's why I like, and I think Trent uh, Reznor is the same way where he he can create these um, like, 
in terms of how like Miyazaki can tap into the wonder and the love in the world and the, you know, just the warmth of it. Um, I think mm-hmm. Trent Reznor and sorry, uh, Joe Hitsashi and Miyazaki, right? I think Trent Reznor and uh, Fincher are equally good at tapping into the darkness in the world. Right. Mm. And um, it's amazing to see treatment um, from all uh, arts involved that uh, exemplify those things so much. You know, that's very cool. Um, yeah, man. But yeah, no, um, seven. <laughs> before we ended off, I, you know, what you just said reminded me of something we haven't talked about yet. And I'll just go over it real fast. But my, one of my favorite scenes in seven uh, is also probably the the hardest scene to watch other than maybe the ending, mm-hmm. which is when uh, it's lust. Oh, God. Yeah, that was it's after they arrest yeah. they arrest a, a man and a pimp. And they have this great visual setup where it's two interrogation rooms, one on left, one on right. Yep. You could see both in a master wide uh, as well as, you know, their mics being recorded on this great, uh, you know, old tape recorder mm. the reels. Yeah. And on the right, Brad Pitt is interrogating a pimp and great little bit player, great actor. I'm surprised they haven't seen him stuff in more. Maybe I have, you know? Yeah. And then on the left, Morgan Freeman is talking to the guy that John Doe at the point of a gun forced uh, him to um, fuck a prostitute with a knife dildo that was strapped onto him. Yeah. Uh, and it's very graphic. And I will say, I saw this movie before I was horribly desensitized as a person. Yeah. And that's probably the darkest I felt ever watching a scene. Uh, mm. I would say maybe, maybe even you would call it um, perverted. Um, and the reason why I didn't turn it off first time i saw it when i saw that scene is because they earned it and it was in the proper context yeah there are other films i've seen that are perverted and have a darkness and an overwhelming darkness to them yeah and especially comedies frankly i don't know why i get this but with some really raunchy r-rated sort of gory comedies where they make me feel that way but they didn't earn it so i turned the movie off immediately because i feel like that's one of the ultimate acts of disrespect i don't want to feel that way Unless you earn it. <laughs> um, right. And yeah. Well, so it's very similar to that scene. Um, I think, I think it's about understanding where he's strapped too, up, you know? Yeah. Because David Fincher definitely, yeah. you can tell that he understands how dark the things that he's talking about are. And, and it's, it's, yeah, and it's prevalent in the treatment. Handles it. Right. Yeah. Um, and the treatment, I mean, of you it, can see it, it like Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt are having to endure both of this and at the end of that scene. Well, right. the guy is like hyperventilating and melting down and, you know, he's going like, oh, God, I fucked her. I fucked yeah. her. Oh, well, actually, God. God, help me. God, help yeah. me. But then there's that great ending shot where it returns the master wide and you just had the music and like that. Yeah. Sort of just well, what, like mellow, like marinating in the darkness as they're both sort of just like holding their head, their head in their hands, right. looking down, you know, on either side. Well, I think this is what I think this is actually something that we should talk about is um, because this comes up a lot. Right. Where. uh you know, a lot of times critics will come out and say, you know, disparaging things about a film because it had um, gratuitous violence or perverse um, things or gore, uh, gratuitous gore, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, I don't ever think that those things are in itself um, what makes makes a film bad. Because those are things that we we uh, have in our lives on this planet, you know, like 
sure they're real things and they are things that you have to talk about but i think it's the treatment of those things that matters right um because if if there's if you're looking at a film and it has horrific violence in it right um you have to look at how the filmmaker treats that moment right if that mm-hmm. moment is you know if that horrific violence is treated as something that's horrific then it's like the filmmaker and you are having the correct reaction to that uh incident right yeah. whereas if it's horrific violence um and the filmmaker is having a cheerful kind of almost blissful uh treatment of it uh what what's that film uh i have the perfect example of this i, I think i, I know exactly example. what you're talking about god, god bless, bless america, america. Yep. <laughs> god bless america yep. i hate i'm sorry i hate it i'm exactly. sorry it's just it didn't deserve it it's bad and you just feel sick when they were running around that house, murdering that lady and treating it as if it was comedy, you know? Yeah. Well, that's, I was just sick to, I got a migraine and I just turned it off and I was like, that's exactly what I mean. And it's, that's what I mean by the treatment of it. Right. And the treatment isn't always comedic, right? Like take Midsummer for example, neither of us like that movie. Right. Uh, Even though we'll say this again, it is a good movie. It's well-made, but the treatment of a lot of the, um situations in that film were treated as like um you know kind of like savior moments when they were like it was truly like horrific what was going on you know where yeah. like this girl was like losing her uh individual individual individuality and her like soul essentially right and she was like melting mm-hmm. into this um it was it was hor- hor- like horrific but it was being treated as this like you know um like I, like this catharsis, right? Right. Like at the very end, when she's watching him burn, up, right. You know? And I feel like the, I feel like it's like, oh, I've overcome my my grief. Yeah, oh, it felt oh, like she yeah. was being like welcomed into a new family, you know. Yeah. And if it was, I don't know, like whether the character um, feels like that or not, you know, it's the filmmaker's job to be objective and use the correct treatment for that, so we understand what's going on. Right. And, you know, his the director there, his motivation might have been different, you know, because like mine would have been to try to help people, not like lead them astray, you know. But um, like if we like, let's say that we directed a movie together and it was Midsummer, right? Like that was the film, like our treatment of it would have been drastically different um, than what uh, this person put it. I think there would have been a lot more um, of an element of horror in it you know um yeah and especially psychological horror not just the the physical horror like they did in the film you know yeah um but you know the treatment at the end should have been one of horror instead of catharsis um and that's kind of what i mean here is like that moment while we're dealing with this incredibly graphic and perverse and horrific uh subject material um it is being treated as such Right. So you know that Dave Fincher understands how horrific this is and he's trying to um, he's he's not only trying to um, show this to us, but he's trying to underline the fact that it is horrific. Right. Yeah. Um, And it's powerful. It's a powerful scene. It's extremely powerful. And you don't even see it. That's another thing that's so masterful about the scene. Yeah is in some of these other moments you see it or there's more of a physical visual nature to what's going on. You have a Polaroid picture and a guy and guys acting 
that's what you have and yet you feel the weight of it yeah you know? i felt like that was so a lot powerful. more traumatic than like a lot of the other visual ones yeah i mean it's funny because I, I it almost feels like um as the film goes and even along, think about the moment oh i'm sorry uh, sorry so as the film it almost feels like as the film goes along fincher deliberately shows less of each crime scene yeah right? i mean think about the girl who where john doe taped a phone to her hand and a bottle of sleeping pills to the other hand and cut off her nose and cut up her face yeah you barely see it you barely see it right but the weight of it is somerset explaining to mills what he did here you right. know call call for help and you'll live <laughs> yeah exactly or you can die um, you know and the first one's the most graphic the gluttony right like you yeah. come in and I, I think i think this is actually a testament to fincher's consideration for his audience um mm-hmm. because as you get to know these characters more obviously the more graphic things are going to be more horrific t- to you you know so like when mm-hmm. you don't know these characters at all he's just full-on graphic there's that shock value Right. But then as you start to understand these characters in this world and you're more immersed into this world, uh, he gets less and less graphic and it almost maintains that same level of uh, horrificness throughout, you know, because it even gets worse. Right. Well, no, not visually. Um, That's kind of what I mean. Oh, yeah. Not visually. Um, You're right. Where like I feel like visually he pulls off a little bit and um like lets us but yet that knife scene you know and well, and i mean but feel more depraved than you know than the very beginning with the, the full well visuals, that's because they are they are more depraved in my opinion right exactly um, but like it would have been worse for us to see it right yeah um and that's that's what i mean is i think that fincher shows an incredible amount of consideration for his audience you know under, yeah, understanding that they're going to be more immersed into the story at this point um yeah, and you're also feeling what they're feeling more. Whereas right. when you're initially seeing Brad Pitt and and uh, um, Somerset deal with the obese man, you're not with them. Right, you know? you're with yourself. Yeah, you don't you're like, know. oh my God. Right? Yeah. You uh, don't know how Somerset feels and how Mills feel about things. And they haven't themselves yet experienced like several of these incidents right. to wear them down. Right, you know? and I think especially at that time when um, CG wasn't a completely like prevalent thing, like – seeing Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box would have been overkill, you know? Yeah. And you see a frame of it, you know, you see one frame of it right before Brad Pitt decides to execute Kevin Spacey. Yeah. Um, which is great. He uses one frames on a lot of things. I think about the one frame penis and, and fight. Right. Right. Um, but also that's beautiful. Um, uh, I want to move on to one last thing and then we can cap it off here. Sure. But, uh, I also want to say this is sort of like a filmmaking one-on-one thing What you're sort of taught when you're like, oh, there's all these sort of different things that you can uh, use to like, um, you know, play on your audience subconsciously so they understand what's going on, you know? Yeah. In this film, there's lots of shots with Mills and Somerset facing the same way. Lots of shots. Yeah. And Not at first. there's also some shots at key moments at very key moments, especially at the very end of them facing the other way, opposite way. I think it actually also so, starts with them facing opposite directions. Um, yes. A lot. And they come together yeah. and then they end apart. Exactly. Right, right. So it's like these key moments that, that they're opposite that show you, you know, in contrast, them yeah. being together. You know what I wonder? At that scene there where they're doing the interviews yeah, yeah. of the, the lust guy, the lust victims, the pimp and the guy that had the knife dildo strapped onto him at that ending moment where they're sort of like saturated, they're marinating and sort of the darkness, right. they're facing the same way there as well, you know? So yeah. there's lots of that in this film to sort of portray 
where they are. If they're together and they're in the same spot, you know, if they're opposed. Yeah, good use of screen. It's very interesting. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a one-on-one thing, but Fincher does it so perfectly, oh, you know, in this film. And just for anyone that like, because I get this a lot when I'm talking about this kind of thing, where people come in and say, there's no way that they thought of that, right? <laughs> um like, keep in mind that, um, and I know this is obvious to a lot of people who are involved in film and, you know, are uh, just film fans in general, but to newer people that are, you know, kind of getting into film, keep in mind that, like, you spend hundreds and hundreds of hours planning all this stuff. You know, it's it's when you're yeah. watching the film and you see it go by in a second, that's like, of course, it feels like there's no way they could have planned that, Right. But when you really think about how much work goes into each of those seconds, um, it's yeah. it's not that that surprising that people start thinking about things like which way char- which way characters are facing in the in the shot, right? Yeah. Um, no, absolutely, a- absolutely. People think about this. Yeah. There was a monologue, a video of Martin Scorsese being interviewed at, I think in the in the eighties. Yeah. And like in a car and they were like, well, well, what do you think about when you're like on your way to set? And he's like, well, when I think about a shot, I'm like, which way are the case? Is this character ending from the left? Is this character ending from the right? Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> am I ending on this guy? Am I moving the camera to a little to the right? Am I going to boom up a little bit? And, you know, like he's to the finest little detail on like what's happening oh, yeah. in the front. And, and of course, like, of course, like intro level, there's this thing called the 180 rule where like, you know, you just draw a line and stay on one side of it to make it look like they're looking in different directions but then when you start getting more advanced that stops mattering so much right and you do have things like um uh where for example uh in the i think it was uh the briefing room scene at the very beginning where they're in their captain's office you know and he's trying to get the the thing switched um he's they're actually not abiding by the 180 rule um they're on the left side of brad pitt and the right side of somerset and Somerset's on the left side of the room and Brad Pitt's on the right side of the room, right? So they're, it's it's like they're sure. on the inside of both both of those characters. And the reason that they're doing that is to make them look opposite directions on the screen, even though they're both talking to the same third party, right? Exactly. Um, exactly. So that's not following the 180 rule, but... And they have a moment of being crossed there as well. Right, right. So. Um, that's not following the 180 rule, but it's, it's, um, it's important, right? And they're using screen direction... Uh, in a active way, which is what uh, essentially what you want to do. And the 180 rule is just a rule of thumb to get people started, you know, actively thinking about screen direction. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, there, there's so many things you think about. Um, and, you know, I just wanted to point that out, not for any of the more experienced film people, but just for the new people that call bullshit on um on screen direction or, you know, color or anything like that, just because they still see it as this thing that flies by. Right. Yeah. I mean, even thinking about color, you know, people want to say color doesn't matter when they are going into that lust scene, when they're going into the brothel, you know, they are literally going downstairs and as they pass the pimp, the pimp is green highlighted in the green neon. But as they go further down and they have to go down several flights of stairs, it gets redder and redder and redder. Right. You know, and it's like, of course that was thought about. And right. of course that evokes exactly what it should evoke, you know, which is you're entering into sort of a hellish scenario. That guy's green because he's sort of twisted and he is, you find out later, you know. Yeah. Is that and so? Was, yeah, it's basic. Were they playing nine inch nails works. in the club? 
It was something yeah. like that. It was very much something like that. It was very much like some like BDSM club music, something like that. So yeah. All right, Nick. Well, I think we can end it there. Um, what film are we doing next time? Okay, so next time we are doing uh, one of my favorite Wes Anderson films, Bottle Rocket, uh, 1996, his first film. Um, cool. And I think this is right up there for me with uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Sweet. Yeah. I'll, I'm looking forward to that. It'll be fun to do that. Um, so everyone, go ahead and watch ahead if you want to keep pace with us. Otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week. Cool. Bye. See you. Hey everyone, Quaid here. After editing this all together, I went on YouTube and found some great film commentary with David Fincher and Brad Pitt from Seven. And here it is. Oh, tell the experience when we after our, the screening in New York, <laughs> the premiere. <laughs> uh, the previous screening it had the original ending with the gunshot, and then it went to black. And I told the guys from NRG, I said, you know, let the audience sit in the dark for a second and then bring the lights up slowly give it like 10 seconds and then let them know the movie's over you know what i mean but of course goes gunshot lights immediately come on and they're passing out these cards what are your favorite characters what's your favorite (laughs) no in the movie and i'm standing in the back of the theater i think it was with bob shea and there's three women combined one of them says to the other one the people who made that movie should be killed (laughs) <laughs> that's and great and they all look like you know, yeah they all look like first grade teachers or something it was just like <laughs> but the recruiting form said would you like to see a new movie starring Brad Pitt in from Legends parenth- of the Fall yeah Legends of the Fall <laughs> and, and Morgan Freeman and then in parentheticals Driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> so, I don't know what the fuck they thought they were going to see, but but I'm telling you from the reaction of the people in there, it was like they were just, they were bristling. They could not, they couldn't have been more offended. You couldn't molest an audience more than to promise Legends of the Fall, Driving Miss Daisy, and then unleash this movie on them. I mean, they just, they just been gang raped. <laughs> it's really because there's something about you know those movies are like those upstanding you know hollywood like nobility those movies are but that's always been my argument with the marketers i mean don't lie don't lie to them but uh it's about money i mean that's simple no you know what simple. there's yes, something there's, there's uh, it's about no the, it's the, not that informs it but but there's another thing there's a weird pathology in in marketing departments and they honestly believe i i to the core of my being i believe go, that this go. is true they believe that it's their job to save it they really do that's their contribution it's like these guys in the one off and they did the best that they could do and now they've made this thing that chances are nobody wants to see because that's it's not smart if you're the head of a marketing department at a major studio to look at a movie and go that fucking movie's great man you know if it gets fucked up now it'll only be me i'll be the one to blame you know what i mean it's like they got to look at it and go i don't know i'll see what i can do (laughs) you know i think that's true to validate but still uh, but if you start with that supposition, if that's the thing that you begin your task of marketing a movie with, then everything is a fall. It's a covering the downside. It's like instead of talking about how a movie is different, they cover the downside and they say Silence of the Lambs. They say, but you know, I, I think um, I still think they're mainly answering to money on the line, and it's not absolutely. It's not being creative, and and it's selling that we because money's on the line. We can't be risky. This is a risky film. We can't be risky with our, with how we put our product out there. We know this has worked before, so 
we got to suck them in. If we can suck them in from whatever pretense, then we've done our job. Right. And, and, and then it's up to I, you. I, I know yeah. they justify and feel. No, but I'm saying, but it's, but if it start, if you start from the, if, you know, you, you got to look at the, it's like the whole system, you know, it's like the a guy sits there and he looks at it. We present him with a movie, our cut, and it's got fucking fingerprints on it and fucking hairs in the gate and the fucking projector stops at one point and the sound's not right. And they sit there and, and invariably, I've never heard a marketing guy go, fuck, what a great movie. That's a home run. <laughs> we, we can't miss with this. They always say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if they want this. But that's a I testament mean, to you pushing the medium, too, though. I well, that, yeah. it, it may be... That, it may be that I haven't made, you know, Men in Black yet, but, 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 but I'm, I'm saying, but if you start from that, if that's the position that you start from, then you have to adopt. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's like, so then they sit there and they go, all right, well, we were queasy about it because we're queasy about everything. And what do, how do we save it? What do we have to tell them to get them in to try this, to sample the goods? And so then it just becomes protecting the downside what can it be like what what can we you know it's one of the things i think that's amazing right now is that dreamworks has had two big hit movies that just have a woman's hand on the poster mm. this is a really good sign for movie marketing because it begins to change the whole it changes the fashion i mean for 15 fucking years we've had who's in it put their fucking face can you make them any bigger can you make the billboard bigger? Can you just, we just use his nostrils. You know what I mean? Is there some way we could just, like, just use his nostrils because that's as big as it could possibly get. And then, and then we're covered. We, hey, you went and you spent, you know, for the actors and we put them up on the fucking poster. What do you want from us? And I, and I think that it's, you know, that's going, what goes around comes around. And, and, and I think, you know, you're starting to see people market movies in slightly more ambiguous and slightly more, um, tangential way. It was a beautiful poster done for this one, and of course they had to go back to the big heads. You know, got you. Yeah. You got some texture in there. Yeah. I mean, he elevated it, but it wasn't what wasn't the original vision because they wouldn't have it. The one that I always liked was it was completely black, and there's a silhouette of Morgan, a silhouette of Brad. It's standing in the doorway and gluttony the gluttony shape and they had a flashlight on it and it looked like report to the commissioner right like it had that kind of like what is this movie about you know and then and then the, you know, the, other the one thing i liked was, was just the still from the after we lost john doe in the rain All oh yeah 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 just yeah. looking down the alley with the yeah. rain pouring on them and it yeah it was beautiful and and the other thing that was amazing was like the, the seven scratches, you know, the stitches as, as they became known. Why can't you put a poster out that has seven lines on it? Call movie seven. Why can't you put it in the print, you know, put it in the theater as seven, but just put that on the poster? Oh, no, 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 no. You got to write seven out. You know, it's like you just go you know hopefully it's an r-rated movie you know if they can't if people can't make this leap and understand that the movie that's being advertised at the amc 14 as seven is that movie then fuck what are we doing